Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, June the 29th, 2022. This is episode 3,115 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about aquaponics for food production with still Stephen Reisner. Reisner, I'm sorry. Uh, again, episode 3,115. This is a fantastic episode. It starts out pretty good. Then it gets really good, then it gets even better, and then it gets fantastic. That's why it went two freaking hours, because it was just that good. I've made an effort recently to try to push the time of most of these shows. It's not always happening, but about around an hour. I find that that works better to get more listens to a podcast, views to videos and stuff than these two-hour shows. But what I've always said is when i got a guest and it's going good and it's getting better and it's flowing, I will never shorten a guest interview. If I have to be Joe Rogan one day a week, I will do it and uh, or aspire to be Joe Rogan, I guess. Uh, and this was one of those interviews. This will blow you away. There's stuff in this. We're talking about aquaponics for food production today, but if you're not into aquaponics, If you grow your own food at all, like half, at least half the material will blow you away anyway because it will work in systems other than aquaponic systems. And I think that some of the things you'll learn today just are kind of mind-blowing. Stephen drops stuff that you know is kind of the inside secret sauce type thing that's taken him years to learn today. And sometimes it's a little bitty thing. And if you, if you know it, it can change everything about your production systems. And, and it's why I see the guy as a kindred spirit, having just met him for the first time myself doing this interview, because that's what I've always tried to do. I don't hold anything back. There's so many times I get a guest, I can tell they're holding certain little insider things back. And you can understand, but what I'm really looking for are people that are so much the, the heart of an educator, they can't hold it back. They couldn't do it if they wanted to. That, that's this interview. This interview is good enough. I'm going to pull at least two segments out of it. Um, for shorts, for standalone shorts to put out as well, because they're that good. Uh, th there's one that I'll, I'll, you'll hear toward the end on a Korean method of farming called uh, Indigenous Microorganisms, or IMO. And I have talked about it before, but he breaks it down as the simplest way I've ever heard to do some of this stuff ever. And what can be done with it is absolutely, positively mind-blowing. We even talk about some stuff with mushroom production today. We, I, I give away a bunch of my little hacks and stuff, stuff I've done before, but now it's all in one place talking to somebody else about it and getting feedback. Just a fantastic interview. I hope you really enjoy it. We'll have it in just a second. This was done by live uh, feed on YouTube and Odyssey and all that. If you ever want to catch one of those, make sure you're on our Telegram channel. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Get Social to make sure you figure out how to connect with us. But the Telegram channel, it is, it is very seldom that I don't, about one hour before a live stream, put out a notice on there that says, hey, we're going to have a live stream and here's what it's going to be about. And you can always find out about the next upcoming live stream, assuming I've updated it. Because yeah, like right now it may not be, it might still be this one at TSP, tsplive.com. Uh, tspclive.com. Yeah, I think I left the C off it the first time I said it. tspclive.com will have all the streams for the next upcoming one, usually uh, first thing in the morning. Uh, 
I, I go ahead and update that with uh, that day's live stream, if there's going to be a live stream that day. With that, before we bring Stephen on, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one, is JM Bullion. You guys know I'm, I'm a big Bitcoin stacker, but I'm still a silver and gold stacker, and I've been recommending, and I have not changed my recommendation, uh, that you look at somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold as a wealth assurance program because they do have such a long-proven history of being a store of value. And the reason you want to go with JM Bullion is, well, they've sponsored this show for nine freaking years, guys. That's loyalty. That's number one. Number two, free shipping on all orders. Number three, they have better pricing than like Monex and Atmex. And number four, I can talk directly to the president. So I just don't know why you would you would deal with anybody else. And if you're an MSB member... Uh, which you can learn about by going to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members, uh, you get a discount. It's, you can only use it once a month, but most people you know, buy their silver and gold once a month, so it's not really a big deal. It's not a huge discount, but the fact that they do it means a lot to me. It's an incredibly thin margin market, silver and gold. Uh, so check them out today, Jam Bullion. Next up, Ridge Wallet. Uh, I've been using Ridge Wallet now almost five years. It'll be five years this December. Uh, it helped me minimize my EDC and carry less and not have that big bulging billfold in my back pocket that I take out of my pocket when I'm in my truck and I go to the store and then I go inside and I forgot my wallet and I gotta go back out of the truck and people in line are mad at me and all that. That's all. And it protects me from identity theft and they have some other really cool products. Uh, I, I, when I travel, I always use my Ridge wallet, uh, backpack. It's cool. It's got integrated power charging. It's an incredible backpack. Uh, they have, uh, backup power charging equipment as well, and some other really cool stuff. It's not just the Ridge Wallet anymore. Check them out, though. you find the website, RidgeWallet.com. And again, MSB members, 10% off everything at RidgeWallet.com. With that, let's go ahead and dive into our interview. Again, this is done by a live stream uh, video. And if you ever want to catch those, get on the Telegram channel at the Get Social tab at the Survival Podcast. And we are live. Uh, welcome, guys, to episode 3115 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to be talking aquaponics with Stephen Raisner. Did I say that right, Stephen Raisner? Yes, you did. All right, I got it right. Uh, we're going to be talking about aquaponics. Stephen's worked all over the world. He's been in Canada, Jamaica, Zimbabwe, South Africa, all across the United States. He's done a ton with aquaponics. We're going to talk to him about just what aquaponics is. We're going to talk about something known as the dual root zone planning system, which I'm, I'm really interested to learn about. Uh, and, and so this is going to be a fantastic interview. We haven't done a deep dive into aquaponics for quite a while. Stephen, can we start out with, like, instead of diving into aquaponics, just who, who is Stephen? Like, sure. you're doing all this cool stuff with aquaponics and all, but wh where did you start out? Like, when you were getting out of high school or college or whatever and trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life, how do you end up here? Sure. So I originally got a degree in IT, um, but I grew up on an organic farm. My grandparents had a, a organic two-acre organic farm. I loved farming. And uh, after doing computers for seven months, I realized this isn't what I want to do with my life. I was still young enough to change the direction of my life and my career. Uh, so I got into um, uh, growing plants again and working with fish. And um, I started working in the pet trade. And we used to use uh, what they used to call river tanks which was a, a method of recirculating the water in reptile tanks to keep the animals healthier and to have live plants and to just have a nicer looking enclosure than, than the, you know, bare bottom tanks that a lot of people have. So that's how I got into the notion of aquaponics. We didn't know it was aquaponics at the time, but that was my first introduction to all of that. And then 
Um, later on, as I got got better and better, I got it more into uh, agriculture and uh, started working in a large pond place and then moved out west to work with medicinal plants. And uh, uh, through that, ended up um, losing my jo- uh, job because of the floods that happened in uh, 2013 in Colorado. I ended up working at the aquaponic source. And from there, um, was the head of research for a couple of years in product development uh, w- with them there at, and the team with Sylvia Bernstein uh, back when she used to run it. And um, it was a good time. And when they sold the company, uh, they kind of changed out some of the different staff there. And I started my own consulting company and uh from there, I've gone on to work with all kinds of different uh, medicinal plant and organic vegetable and um, uh, fruit tree producers and all kinds of different things that are more advanced than just your average lettuce production uh, in aquaponics. So let's start off with what is aquaponics? And I find that to be one of those questions kind of like, what is permaculture? You get 10 permaculturists, you ask them the question, you get 10 different answers. And you just came, gave kind of an example of why, like you just explained, there, here's this thing that nobody calls aquaponics, but it's a type of aquaponics. So how, how, cause I think that's really cool doing the reptile terrariums with flow through that. That's something I've done myself as a reptile enthusiast. It's, it's awesome. So what, what is aquaponics? So the person is like, I really don't get it. Maybe they've heard of it. And, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions as to what it really is. Sure. So, um, aquaponics is actually, um, any type of plant growth where you have 70 to 75% or more of the plant uh, nutrients being fed from the fish. So some people actually do soil-based aquaponics where they're just basically making like a compost tea from the, the fish waste as their nutrient solution for their plants in a soil-based thing, especially a lot of different uh, specialty crops grow that specific way because it's a little bit more um, capable of catering to their crop, especially if it's a, a crop that's dependent on mycorrhizal fungi uh, and has a, especially a lot of the higher end crops that are very dependent on, on a symbiote. Um, they can be much easier to dial in in a soil-based media. Uh, and, and so that's co- a common way, but also things like, you know, traditional aquaponics with DWC rafts or deep water culture rafts with floating uh, rafts on top that have the lettuce and, and things like that. And then also media beds that are flood and drain or wicking beds, which are just um, soil beds that have water at the bottom that allows the water to soak up, especially if you're in a very hot temperature uh, place like Arizona or Southern California or other places where it gets extremely hot or Texas. Um, this can be a great way with the wicking beds to, to allow you to grow even in 110 degrees, 115 degrees, and anything except for lettuce is going to still, you know, do just fine. Your peppers and tomatoes and everything else, will, you know, just rip because they have the access to that water deep in the, Gotcha. And how does aquaponics fit into, let's say, a homestead or potentially a intentional community as part of the cultivation plan? Obviously, I've taught preparedness now for 14 years, and I've said that, like, the reason I always spend more time on producing food than things like uh, guns and tactics and stuff like that is, you know, I've been in a very few amount of fights in my life, but I've had to eat every day. So food production is paramount. Sure. So um, we actually have a, a quite a few people now that are working this into their homestead where they'll have kind of a two-pond system with a, a some type of solar water pump 
to pump the water from the one pond, lower pond up to the higher pond with a stream that kind of flows through the, the entire property that they can then siphon off to, to water their various grow beds or hugel beds or whoever it is that they have their property laid out. Um, and then also having different areas of different fish. If I want to have two different species of fish that might eat each other, I can have them in the different portions of the different ponds or even have a third pond in that chain and, and have different types of fish and, and shrimp in your production. Um, solar pumps have come down in price significantly. You can actually buy pond pumps that are, you know, have their own solar panel and their own, their own battery bank. You don't have to do anything for them. Uh, and that can work extremely well. Um, but it also allows you to have all your different grow beds. If you just want to have a whole bunch of grow beds on the side of that pond or, uh, or stream, uh, a lot of people are doing that with their koi ponds and things like that as well for enjoyment to further, uh, you know, get more uh, food production off of their, their ability. Remember, you can produce off of uh, 10,000 square feet the same amount of lettuce per year as, te- as four acres of, of yeah. soil. So, you know, you really can get a really ridiculous amount of food production out of these because they do grow uh, leafy greens at two to three times as fast. You know, you can get harvestable lettuce in 40 days um, uh, or less oftentimes with, depending on what type of lettuce that you're growing. Let's talk about some of the equipment that people need, and, and I want to uh, discuss some of the stuff that you're doing that's more uh, specialized, um, like a dual root zone thing. But let's start off with the basics, and, and I want to throw some of the things I'm doing at you and get your thoughts on them if you've seen them before or not. But let's go real basic. Somebody wants to set up and do aquaponics kind of for the first time. Sure. So if you're just new to aquaponics, um, the easiest way to do it is you can go out and get an IBC tote. You get those just about anywhere. Uh, you cut the top off, flip it over, and now you have a four by four grow bed. Um, it's could be a fun afternoon project uh, as long as you got a, a wire cutters or a sawzall, and, and away you go. Um, if you want something even simpler, you can get a concrete mixing tray and a tough tote uh, and a, a piece of um, uh, loop uh, uh, a tubing. Uh, from Home Depot, and then go to the hydro store or the garden center next door and get a flood and drain kit, uh, a hydroponic flood and drain kit. It'll cost you about 10 bucks for the plumbing and the, and the bulkhead. Uh, and then away you go. You get a little pump from uh, the, the aisle there in Home Depot for a fountain, and uh, that's going to allow you to flood and drain your grow bed. Um, you can use a, a method called a loop siphon, which is just a, a, a piece of tubing that goes up and loops or over and goes back down. You can look that up on Google. But basically the top of the loop is going to be the water height. So that you basically want that to be about halfway up your grow bed. Uh, and, you know, put a little screw or a pin in the side that's perfectly fine. Put your loop over it and away you go. Um, you can build one of those for about $40 at Home Depot. Uh, it's, it's a great way, especially if you want to teach kids and you have education, you're doing homeschooling and things like that. Uh, a small scale aquaponics system like that can be a great way to educate them on chemistry, on um, biology, botany, uh, you know, physics, uh, a whole wide range of different things, uh, all in, you know, a $40 kit. So let's, let's kind of go through some of the basic, uh, ways that aquaponics is done. You just mentioned one there, ebb and flow. People also call it flood and drain. Um, that's generally done with a media like lava rock or Lico, which are the little clay pebbles. Can you kind of talk about what ebb and flow is and why it works as well as it does? Sure. So. Um, there's a, a couple of different ways that they do aquaponics, but um, the first one that we'll talk about is ebb and flow. So that is having the water go up and down into uh, in a grow bed. And uh, the very first person that kind of came up with this type of method or some version of this method 
actually was Pythagoras. He actually had a, uh, originally had a cup called the Greed Cup or the Pythagorean Cup, which had a bell siphon built into the stem. And if you overfilled it, it would dump all the contents, all the wine out of the stem of the cup and pour it all over you. Well, we use those same type of bell siphons that he designed uh, for our uh, flood and drain beds in, a, in our aquaponics uh, on a standpipe with a bulkhead uh, that allows the water to fill up to the height of the, the standpipe. And then once it goes over that, it creates a vacuum inside that chamber and that floods down through the pipe and drains the grow bed all the way down to whatever the slits are cut in the end of that bell. And that uh, air brake allows that to, to stop and that can drain it. Uh, and bell siphons and loop siphons, I prefer uh, those two because um, you're using physics, right? There's no failure point. There's no timer to fail. Um, the pump can run continuously, which is much easier on the pump mechanics. Uh, and um, you end up with fewer, again, fewer failure points is always better no matter what you're doing. Uh, and See, fewer now, things to replace. I found actually the opposite to be true. I've had innumerable times that with a continuous running pump, the the velocity of the water will change over time as the pump clogs. And what will happen with a siphon sometimes, like you have to be running fast enough to trigger it, but slow enough to break it, right? Yep. And so I've gone with all my ebb and flow to timer-based systems. I use a $9 timer. I use a small pump. Kicks on for 15 minutes. Comes, It's the, the way the hydro guys do it, right? So the water comes in through one delivery system, and then that's coming straight in the bottom with a bulkhead or a uniseal at the very bottom of the tank. So it's flush to the bottom. If you want to hold water higher, you can put a little bit of a stand up in there, but it's lower. And then you have a higher stand up in a second. So you do have to use two bulkheads per ebb and flow bed or series of beds. And then that water comes up and overflows at that top level that you're talking about. And when that pump shuts off, the water just goes back out the hole it came in with. And when I started doing that in aquaponics, I was told by a numerous, you know, YouTube experts that I'm a moron. And that can't work. You can only do that in hydro. And then they had some reason about fish shit or something that you couldn't do it in aquaponics. I've got systems that are running like that now for four years. And I actually have experienced a lot less ebb and flow hang up. Now, those little timers, like I pretty much say just replace them every year. They're eight bucks because they do end up the little the little things on them wear out or, you know, keep, they're not really designed to be outside. I guess Christmas lights use them for one month or whatever, but I found that to work really, really well. If that works for you, uh, uh, that, that's great. And, and just like you said, as long as you replace them regularly, um, you know, you can definitely get rid of that being a factor. Um, uh, I, you know, a lot of the times when I'm doing this, I'm working on commercial systems where we have bigger, beefier pumps and we'll mm-hmm. often put a bleed loop as well. So, if there is a bit of flow difference, I can just choke off that bleed valve and it'll increase my pressure again in the main line. Um, yeah. Kind of help balance that issue out. Um, also with some of the larger PSI pumps, they have a little bit less of the, the speed loss with the, with yeah. the pressure on the, on the bigger yeah. end. Um, but, um, but yeah, so hey, if that works for you and, 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 and if any method works good for you in your garden, then stick to it, right? Like yep. just because someone else has it dialed in, I think that's one of the biggest things to take away from aquaponics is, hey, like, if you got something and it's working and everything's growing great, then then don't change it. You know, it's fine. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, so we talked about ebb and flow, and I think maybe we should state for the audience that might be new to the thing, the big reason we do that is because that water comes in and out and we get a good oxygen exchange as those nutrients and, and moisture are brought to the root system. But another method that we use is uh, like rafting. So we take, and that's 
in my experience anyway, it's been mostly for greens. Um, can you talk about rafting and how that works? Sure. So, um, so media beds are really good for long-term crops, stuff you're going to grow for more than three months because it has to have a better anchor for the, the heavier plant and the thicker stems <clears throat> and generally more flowering type crops. The, uh, raft beds are much better for leafy greens, quick turn stuff that you're going to grow uh, pretty fast and then pull out. Um, if you leave a lot of the crops in there too long, they'll actually get too large and bust up your rafts. Uh, at the base where the roots come down, they'll, they'll uh, especially things like Swiss chard uh, can shred your your raft. So don't you know be careful with some of those. Um, but a yes, beautiful one is a beautiful <laughs> one is red sorrel. If you ever grow red sorrel in uh, raft beds, they get these beautiful silver roots that look like they're made of metal. Um, they're, yeah. they're absolutely beautiful. Um, but uh, that it can be a great way, again, for growing any of your, your different leafy greens and things like that at a much faster rate. The other thing that's nice about DWC beds is they do act as a thermal holding a lot more heat. So if you combine that with a solar heating system, uh, it can act to help significantly heat your greenhouse. If you're in a colder climate, uh, especially in the wintertime, you fire that up and, and, and in conjunction with a solar water heater like we did in Colorado, and you can really, you know, get a, a ton of thermal mass out of that thing. And that's mainly because we're increasing the overall volume of water in the system because now we don't just have, like, our fish tank. We actually have kind of these remote water tanks as well. And I've noticed in particular commercial operations – and I know you do a lot in the cannabis industry too, but commercial operations more in, let's say, the food industry rather than the medicinal industry, um, they tend to focus mostly on greens because they're quick turnover and high profit compared to something like this tomato plant that, yeah, it'll produce a ton of tomatoes, but I got to get it into production. It has, you know, with chickens and we're doing eggs or ducks and we're doing eggs, you call it a feed net. Like I have to feed this animal for six months before I get my first egg. And then I have this relative turnover where, a lot of these leaf crops, you can grow them when they're babies in a lot less space. So people have the succession going in, and they're able to be a lot more financially sustainable that way. And so I've seen, you know, like half acre or one acre greenhouses where 70% of it is deep water tanks for greens, and they're still growing a ton of tomatoes or peppers or whatever in ebb and flow. Absolutely. And that tends to be the most profitable, especially if you're near a bigger population center, because again, your, your, your dollar per square foot per year is going to be better with that higher turnover. Um, just like you're saying, baby greens is the, uh, a really high, high dollar one. The biggest reason why I see people kind of fail with that kind of issue is they don't do enough homework with what types of crops that they should be growing. Um, grow stuff. If it's the, if it's the wintertime, grow stuff that should be growing in the summertime. You have a greenhouse, so you can do that. Right, you can get premium dollars for those tomatoes wow. if they're fresh off the vine in January. Right, so that's the kind of stuff that people kind of need to think about, and, and also too in the summertime. Right, like you got to switch to stuff that's going to live in your greenhouse in the summer and not you know fry in the heat if you happen to have a fan fail or something like that. So you got to have to you know balance out your risk as well uh, as part of that. What are some methods that you specifically use for various crops? Like, like we already said, like leafy greens, deep water, tomatoes, peppers, things like that. We're going to use probably ebb and flow, some sort of media bed, Dutch buckets or something. But are there any other, like, you know, I, I know you've done some things that are a bit outside of the box from the standard everyday YouTube or aquaponics system. Sure. So if I'm going to go root crops, if I want to go potatoes or garlic or, uh, uh, any kind of root harvested crop, uh, um, uh, OSHA root is another one that's a very good antiviral. That's really good one to grow for home for your home medicine cabinet. 
Um, you can grow all of those in a wicking bed where we put uh, a thin layer of lava rock, maybe two or three inches of lava rock across the bottom, a layer of, of uh, shade cloth or a gardener's cloth, landscaper's cloth, We've and then soil on top of that, and then allow that water to kind of trickle up through that. And we can get crazy yields on, on a whole bunch of crops that traditionally you can't grow you know, in a commercial setting. We've also grown wasabi uh, and uh, a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, higher dollar crops in that as well. Um, for fruit trees, we do it in a two-third soil, one-third flood and drain uh, in a giant dual root zone pot where we have soil in the top part separated by a layer of root permeable cloth, so something like burlap or something like that that the roots can punch through. Uh, or if it's a tree that we're transplanting, we even cut a small hole and put the tap root down into the water uh, when we transplant them. Uh, and then uh, a layer of flood and drain in the bottom, like a lava rock or, you know, other media. And that works extremely well for um, tomatoes uh, but, uh, that you're going to grow long term, but also peppers, uh, fruit trees like lemons, um, citrus, peaches, um, cherry trees. We've grown um, avocados, uh, a whole wide range of different stuff that way. We've grown uh, toma- uh, banana trees that way as well inside the greenhouse. So a whole bunch of great stuff. Uh, on that. And then as far as the quick turn stuff, just like you're saying in DWC, and then if you're going to grow kitchen herbs and you want really high essential oils, you can grow them in what's called an NFT, which would be like a, a piece of pipe with uh, holes cut in the top of it, like a, a hydro uh, trough. And that allows you to pull the plants up from net buckets and root prune. If you root prune, it basically simulates as if the insects are uh, attacking the roots or feeding on the roots, and that increases the essential oil production in the plant. So ah. going thyme, rosemary, oregano, basil, uh, all of those things will respond well to that and increase the essential oils and be much more potent. Yeah, I'm going to pull up an image real quick here. Hopefully it won't mess up uh, on what NFT looks like in an aquaponic system. Of course, the picture I picked is like this tiny ass picture. Let me see if I can. Yeah, I can blow it up here. But, yeah, I think that's uh, first of all, I that's really cool um, about being able, like pruning the roots, increasing the essential oils. That's that's something I didn't know. But let's get for people looking here on the video anyway. This is not my image. It's just a random image I got off the Internet. But this is what he's talking about when he talks about NFT or nutrient film technique. And this is really common, and again, in hydroponics where we're using basically chemicals to provide the fertilization versus the, the fish and their waste and the nitrite, nitrite cycle. Um, but I, there's a lot of things like this, I agree with you, that I see – Hydro people doing and aquaponics people tend not to. And I think this is one of the, honestly, one of the easiest ways to grow lots of greens. And it, it's also very, um, it's very oriented towards succession cropping because you have those little net cop cups and you can grow in a media like uh, Rapid Rooter or you can grow on Lika, whatever you want to do inside that cup. But you can have basically some really high density stuff for your starts. And as that plant gets a little bit bigger and we're harvesting out, we just swap out those cups. And that, to me, that's been a fantastic, and I've done it both hydro. I do both. And uh, it's worked equally well. And I I found, I don't know about you, I found that when it comes to, like, fish stocking density and the amount of nutrient necessary, I'm able to get leaf crops to grow real easy. Like, I don't have to worry so much about do I have enough fish, are they producing enough waste, um, 
where the things like peppers and tomatoes and all, you have to really pay attention to your stocking density a little bit more. And one of the ways I've handled that, I have worms in all my ebb and flow beds. So if the fish aren't producing enough waste, I throw fish food right on top of the ebb and flow beds, and then the worms come up and eat that, and that improves the overall nutrient uh, interaction in the system. And people ask you, you know, how do you get worms in there? You put them in there, but I, I don't know about you either, but every damn aquaponic system I've ever set up, the worms come. I don't know. Like they show up. Like it doesn't matter where you put it. There will be worms. Especially if you have an outdoor system, you get the birds come to drink from the thing and they have worm eggs on them and, and away they go or, you know, a little bit left over from their lunch. They squeeze some of the eggs out of whatever their, their worm yeah. is that they pulled out of the ground. But for the flowering crops, um, what we found that works best is again, putting them in those dual root zone pots. So putting them in a you know, three, three to five gallon pot with the top half being soil, the uh, layer of burlap. And the bottom half being the same media as the rest of the bed, uh, setting that uh, that line where the flood and drain layer is just above uh, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, just below the uh, the the cloth that separates the soil and the media, um, uh, so that you're not getting that water touching the soil. You want to top water these and have control over the moisture in that upper zone, uh, and then that allows you to to feed if you want to add an extra bloom booster, potassium silicate, or you know, some yeah. kind of other uh, booster to that without messing with the fish. Uh, you can, you know, individually feed different plants on a different ratio. So if I want to feed my fruit tree over here, the tomato here, and the cucumber here, they can all get fed at different rates, uh, but still get, you know, 75, 80% of the nutrients from the, the main fish system. Um, and that allows you to kind of dial in a whole bunch of different types of crops all in the same system without yeah, anybody you being unhappy. You also have a major pH buffer in soil compared to in water. So if a plant needs a certain pH and you can have some leaching issues. I'm really excited to hear you talk about this. I've been doing this uh, eight years now. You are the first person other than myself and, and my, my good friend David that I've heard really talk about integrating soil based agriculture into aquaponic systems. We do two types of wicking beds that seem very similar to what you're doing. We do what we call a flow through wicking bed where we have a constant flow coming from the aquaponic system. And a lot of my systems are more garden ponds. They're large amounts of water compared to grow media. And that's why I'm doing the soil, because if I was doing straight aquaponics with that, I'm not overstocked and overfiltered enough to get enough nutrient exchange. So we'll have that just run a slow cycle all the time. And as long as you're not, like you said, getting way up into your soil layer, you're not leaching, you're, you're delivering nutrient versus taking nutrient. And then one way we found with a lot of systems to save energy is we'll have a pump, kind of like the ebb and flow on a timer, except it's not really an ebb and flow. It'll run and pass through that uh, wicking bed, and it might run for 15 minutes and top itself off in the morning, and then maybe it runs at noon, and then maybe it runs at 7 o'clock at night. So it runs 45 minutes the entire day, and it just keeps that, level of water high enough in the wicking bed that that bed never dries out. And then, like you said, if that plant needs nitrogen, throw some freaking blood meal on it. If it just needs an overall kick, you can throw some compost in with it. If it, if it looks like it needs a little cow mag, you throw a little cow mag on it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't disrupt the entire system and you don't throw your aquatic side of your system out of balance. And I, I wonder why, like, so you, I don't know how you came up with this. We came up with it on our own. I've always said, I don't know if anybody else doing it. Now I have to give you credit and say, I know at least one other person doing it. Like, why do you think it's not used more by other people in aquaponics? Because it's, to me, it's the easiest thing I've ever done. 
Well, so at least to answer that part of the question, it, it's there's a lot of purists that think aquaponics has to be done with no added thing other than fish food and no soil because that's like people have the, in their mind that it's soilless. And it's like, no, why can't it just be that the fish provide the bulk of the nutrients, right? Like we do in soil, we're perfectly cool with that from cows, right? We see cow manure used in this application in the exact same way. Why is it, why does it have to be this, this funky way with the fish? People, I, don't, I never understood that. It's just kind of like a weird, I don't know, belief thing that people have. But, uh, I, you know, I think that a lot of it too is the fact that you have to remember that what you ha- microbes act like, um, a, a way to stimulate the plant's immune system, right? So if you have fungi that aren't pathogenic, they're going to stimulate the different aspects of the plant's immune system that help it deal and manage fungi and its root system, be them pathogens or non-pathogens. Same thing with bacteria and viruses, right? So the more species that you have access to the plant's root system, the more it's going to build that uh, uh, immune system up in the plant. So that's going to help the plant defend itself against disease, but it's also going to increase things like terpenes and flavonoids and other secondary metabolites like phenols that are going to help the plant uh, defend itself, but also increase flavor and increase uh, mouthfeel and increase uh, scent and other, you know, overall positive experiences from that, that vegetable or, or crop, you know. So um, this is the reason why you, know, you have healthy living soil. Anyone that has a garden soil at home and does composting knows that it tastes better. The reason why it tastes better, and we've quantified this testing it in hydroponics uh, and um, aquaponics and living soil with medicinal plants, is that uh, your, your terpene levels and flavonoid levels can be 300, 400 times higher with all of that microbial diversity in the root system, stimulating all that secondary metabolite production in these plants. So that's the reason why you have healthier plants when you combine the microbiome of the aquatics with the terrestrial. Now you're combining two whole different biomes that are all plant friendly and, and, and are happy to interact with that plant root system. Now the plant's producing a ton of extra secondary metabolites and really thriving and really defending itself in a way that it wouldn't do just in soil or just in, you know, a DWC, for example. No, I agree. And it, it, it is, it is strange to me that we have purists and aquaponics and they're like purists against nature, <laughs> like is what it seems like. Cause when you, when you're saying that, what I'm thinking of is like two plants that I grow that I don't think are real common uh for anywhere but let alone aquaponics and they're ideal for it one is uh apis americana groundnut and then the other one is uh the uh the the chinese duck potato the the large duck potatoes right and they grow they almost sort their arrowheads they look a little bit like an elephant ear but more like an arrow and and they're both great crops well in nature arrowheads grow at the edge of ponds in mud and muck. And that's where they wish to be. That's like, that's the greatest place, a little bit of shade and a lot of muck and lots of water and lots of nutrient. And they're happy. Well, I can't do that with an ebb and flow bed and they do grow in ebb and flow beds. They just do better in, in, you know, muck. Uh, and so to me, like the easiest way to grow them, I just get big tubs. I put a layer of gravel in the bottom. I fill them up with like a compost mixture I throw one duck potato in the middle of it and I literally just build a platform in a water tank and sit it in the tank constant. Like, and then it's sheltered. Like the fish have a place to hide. Like to me, that, that makes perfect sense. And then you're not running water through it. It's, it's not leaching nutrient or what have you. And it's doing a little bit of compost tea action into your whole system. The other one, uh, ground nut, if you find it in the wild where it grows naturally like crazy is on a stream bank. 
That's where it wants to be. It's a very shallow rooted thing. It doesn't have deep roots. It grows when you pull them out. It's almost like pulling a necklace out and you'll have a big one and a little bit smaller all the way down. And, you know, those were grown commercially early on and in, in when we first were settling North America. And what's more like a stream bank than a wicking bed? Right. It's literally the same. So it's amazing to me that I guess maybe it's not more people aren't more open to it. Oh yeah, no, it's, you don't see it anywhere as much. You do see it a little bit now that you have seeing larger systems and they do want to have kind of a bit of a, uh, you know, a one to three percent pass through of their system per month. So they're running it out to terminal wicking beds, usually on the outside of their facilities, uh, especially in places like California and other things that, uh, you know, very much punish you if you put water into the ground from an agricultural facility. It can be a great way for yeah. you to, you know, still make use of all of that, you know, leftover nutrient solution. Uh, you know, get around some of those regulations. We also so, have a, a lot of places doing that too to donate. You know, they'll find a local food pantry or something to partner up with and, you know, bring a truckload of, over and water their garden or a, a local community garden as well. Very smart because now it's not agricultural water going into the ground. It's more agricultural irrigation for more agriculture, right? That's, that's really cool. And yeah, what could be better than this high nutrient, you know, aquaponics water? Um, where, you know, a place like here where it's non-commercial and I'm in Texas, so we don't have California regulations. I just pump water into a swale for the fruit trees and done. And everybody's happy. And why would it be considered bad? It's, it's good, you know. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the species of fish that you mostly work with. And, and where are you? Are you in California? And if you're like SoCal, no. North Cal, those are very different. Where, where are you? No, at? I'm actually in Oklahoma, actually. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm just outside of Oklahoma City, uh, near the Shawnee area. So, um, I do a lot of work out here. There's lots of vegetable growers and medicinal plant growers here, uh, doing aquaponics and living soil. So it's a good place to be for agriculture right now. There's certainly, uh, a lot of agriculture going on in, in Oklahoma these days and, uh, and soon to be Texas too. Uh, you use quite a few aquaponics farms down there. There's a, a huge, uh, tropical fish, uh, farm, uh, near San Antonio that's also an aquaponics facility as well. They monetize the fish through resale uh, that way. Um, that could be a great option if you're a home aquarium keeper and you're really into fish breeding. That can be a great option to kind of help those little freeloading guys uh, pay for their rent and yeah. uh, <laughs> their food production. Um, but uh, for as far as food production for the home, um, you know, bluegill are really good. Um, uh, tilapia are really good. You know, it just depends on if you're heating it or not. If you're in a warmer climate yeah. and you, or you can heat it, you know, tilapia are going to be the best bet for turnover uh, if not bluegill are, are, are very very good for higher density turnover um, yellow perch can be another good one for the home home producer um, uh, channel catfish can be another good one that can be good for the home producer as well that are you know not overly difficult for the, the beginner uh, uh, aquaponist so kind of one of my favorites is just I'm going to say I wouldn't advise this in like a, a chop and flip 300 gallon because it's not spread out enough for a tank is bullhead catfish. And, and what I like about them is there's no limit on them. There's no size limit on them. And the one thing you have, they will eat each other like flat out eat each other. And I've played with them. Like I did a little demo system in my shop for students and it's a 40 gallon breeder fish tank. And I built like this beautiful little cave system, all this limestone rock from the property and stuff and all kinds of hides. And I put like 10 little bullheads in there and you didn't see them very often because they all hid. And then I broke that tank down like eight months later and I had one big catfish. <laughs> right, so yep. he probably hammered the smallest of his brothers 
Uh, but like I have a system now, it's eight by 16. The water, uh, tank system is, and it's about two foot deep. It's half in the ground outdoor system. And I got a couple hundred of them in there and that, you know, they get, a, I'm sure somebody gets eaten once in a while, but that way they have that space to spread out. And the beauty of it is I can take my grandson a couple of days fishing each summer, little pieces of shrimp and we can bring home with an air aerated bucket all our fish for the whole season. And they produce a lot of waste too. So they grow really, really good crops. And I think that I love tilapia. The idea of tilapia, I guess. I think that my problem with tilapia is, like you said, if you're not heating them, this whole idea, in my opinion, that we can take little bitty tiny tilapia and in eight months we really have a fish big enough to harvest that's worthy of killing it. I, I, I don't really agree with that in my experience. Like it takes like a season and a half and then you got, you know, you got a plate size fish per tilapia. Um, but if we use native fish, native fish live in native water. They deal with native pHs. So if we're using a well, we're going to have similar water. People are always freaking out because I have a lot of limestone in some of my systems. And I think the patina you get that, uh, like biofilm, I think that mitigates that a lot anyway. But I'm like, these fish came out of a creek that runs through limestone. It doesn't matter. It's that they're used to it. They get local diseases. They're resistant to them. I think that if you can do that, that's probably the easiest thing. And then my other thing I always tell people, like, you're, you're cycling a system. You don't have time to go catch fish. You don't want to buy really expensive fish. Go down to Petco and buy a couple dozen freaking feeder goldfish and whip those things in there. And any of them that die, just take them and stick them in your wicking beds like fertilizer spikes. The, um, the, the, the trick I've found with the fish side, especially for preventing disease and accelerating growth rate, are you familiar with lactobacillus bacteria? Do you talk about Yeah. Uh, that is a bit, so there's a, a methodology called labs from Korean natural farming or, or basically, um, taking the whey. If you're doing a, a milk ferments, um, the, your curds and whey, the whey from it is what's considered a lactobacillic acid bacteria serum. You can okay. take that and, uh, put that in your aquaponic system at a rate of one to 1000. Um, and that works extremely well. Uh, so one gallon of, uh, uh, lactobacillus serums per 1000 gallons of, uh, uh, aquaponic system and that helps treat things like uh, prevent issues like E. coli, salmonella, but also has high amount of, of vitamin B. Uh, it breaks down the sludge in your system. Um, but we, we've actually done trials with this with a couple of different um, universities. KSU did a, a study on this. They found it increases fish growth fi- uh, and plant growth 15 to 20 percent. Um, wow. We've also used it three times now to eliminate E. coli uh, in aquaponic systems that had leafy greens in them. Where they had non-human pathogenic E. coli that was causing them to get false positives. We were able to use that to eliminate it without having any type of negative impact on the system. So it can help ensure food safety in your system. Uh, and then what you do is you take the curds the the, the uh, off of that, the cheese that forms on the top of that, and you feed it to your fish, and it's basically fat and protein, so it accelerates the, and, and vitamin B. So it accelerates the growth rate of your fish. Uh, it helps prevent things like fin rot and, and, and things like that, especially with bluegills and perch. They can kind of beat on each other a little bit and kind of pick at each other a little bit. It really helps prevent that secondary fungal infections they often get, um, especially if you have them in higher densities. Um, well, that's, and that's we found that, that, Let's go through what you're actually making again, because I get the lactobacillus sure. thing, but are you basically <laughs> curling yogurt? I mean, how, what, how are you making this product? Sure. So we, we usually what we'll do is we'll take four gallons of milk. Uh, okay. We'll take about a, a quarter uh, a quarter gallon of rice wash. So we'll take rice and we'll just uh, uh, wash it so that we can get the dust off of it. You know that we're normally eating rice for the house. And um, we'll save that water that has that rice dust in it. 
and, and we put that quarter gallon of that in there, and that gives us some of the yeasts and things like that from the rice. Uh, and then we mix that together, and then we're adding a couple a couple grains of kefir, or okay. um, uh, you know whatever uh, you've got yogurt or whatever lactobacillus start you want to do. If you're in the middle of uh, a city, you can also use you can go to the pharmacy and act, ask them for the lactobacillus um, uh, behind the counter. It's the probiotic um, uh, uh, that they give you after you take antibiotics. Uh, okay. It's behind the counter. It's not a prescription. You just have to ask for it. You can take those pills, break them open. That'll also work too if you're in a pinch. And so, you know, pick your poison on that one. Um, and then uh, put that in there, stir it all up, and then allow that, you know, two to three days to, to brew up. And then it'll separate. So you have the cheese at the top, um, yes. which you can take off and either turn that into regular cheese if you want to uh, add salt to it and cook it down and press it and get the juice out. Now you can add flavoring to that and eat it yourself, or you can feed it to your livestock or your, your fish or things like that. Then you strain that and take the, the, the thinner, more liquidy part of that and pour that into your system at a rate of one to 1,000. So one okay. gallon per 1,000 gallons. Per 1,000 gallons. Okay. That is a hell of a hack right there. It's Thank also you. good for powdery mildew. Spray it on your leafy, any of your greens um, uh, for cucumbers or pumpkins or anything that would typically get powdery mildew. Uh, it's really, really good at eating fungal infections. So if you get septoria, if you get um, uh, any type of your your foliar, you know, fungal infections, it, it's really, really good at beating back. Very cool. What What do you think the the best crops are for people to grow for like new people? Because I always believe like if you have success, you'll get excited and you'll work through your problems. But if you start with problems, you probably are going to fall out. Sure. So. Um, in the summertime, I would say, say um, uh, watercress is really good. And then if you're going to do leafy greens for the summertime, uh, I would do Tropicana or um, uh, Thousand Island uh, lettuce. Uh, those are the, the two varieties that we found that do really, really well in the heat. Everything else doesn't really like the heat that much. Yeah. Um, and then in the fall and things like that, you can get into the red sailless lettuce and some of the other crisp lettuces. Um, all of those are going to kick butt. Um Wintertime, spinach and arugula, um, if the day is too long, it'll start to flower right away and forget it. It, it works like some of the medicinal plants do where um, it has a set you know, flowering time based on light cycle. So avoid those if you're in the summertime. Um, but other than that, yeah, any, any of your leafier greens, any of your kitchen herbs, rosemary, oregano, thyme, um, uh, you know, basil, anything that you're going to use on a regular basis, you can set up even a small system next to your aquarium with an overflow box that goes to the same sump tank. Um, you can get an overflow box at any aquarium store and, and, a, and a tough tote and a little pump and, and immediately set up a grow bed next to your fish tank with a little grow light anywhere. Even if you're in an apartment, it can be an extremely cheap way to, you know, just adapt what you already have. Hey, if you, if you got fish, I always say, hey, they're, they're freeloading until they're paying their weight. If they can be growing your vegetables or at least your kitchen herbs, you know, hey, they're, they're helping, uh, pull their weight for as far as the household goes. So. Yeah, I've got a great big rainbow shark looking at me right now going, I ain't no freeloader. <laughs> but actually, the tropical fish angle, um, I don't know if it was the same thing, but I think it was Corey uh, from Aquarium Co-op. I saw do a tour. It was either in San Antonio or Houston or somewhere down there. And it was this massive uh, greenhouse-based tropical fish operation. And they make most of their money from selling fish into the aquarium uh, industry. And I think that, like, I'm not saying to do that. I'm saying that a lot of people that want to be in agriculture need to broaden their horizons as to what their cash flow is. Because if you're going to do an aquaponics farm, 
you can sell a little bitty fish like a Buenos Aires Tetra for a dollar ninety nine, right? And you can you can breed thousands of those, or you can try to sell one big tilapia. Now, if you're producing it for yourself to eat, that's that's a different thing, but Like guppies breed real easy. I'm just gonna say it, right? And guppies have a mon, even if they're cheap, they have a monetary value, and they ship in a little bitty bag in a box and can go anywhere in the country if you ship them in you know 48 hour or less shipping. And I think there's that's just one example. I think like I remember hearing about this farm in New York, and it wasn't aquaponics, but it was a farm, and it was an organic farm. And they were it was the number. I know you can make a living on four acres easy. But it was the number of people they were employing, and I'm like, how the hell are you employing that many people, whatever the number was, with four acres? They were growing roses, and they were selling roses into the florist industry and organic roses at that. And I think that, again, I'm not saying start a rose farm or start a guppy farm. I'm just saying that, like, if you're doing this thing with any sort of commercial output, As many as you can stack into it, because I can still I can grow tilapia in one tank and guppies in another. And maybe I shut down my outdoor guppy operation and just bring some breeders in over winter so I don't have to heat, right? Like I don't have to do the same fish everywhere. I just certain fish don't go together. If I put bluegills with guppies, I'm gonna have fat bluegills and no guppies. It also depends too on what regulations you you want to deal with, right? So yeah. you don't want to have a ton of inspectors around all the time. You know, you could do something like butterfly koi and sell that into the pond market, and that's that's honestly the the one where most of the people that we start off with the first year or two until they get the rest of the farm dialed in, we recommend yeah. them always do butterfly koi. There's no other fish that's going to be as easy to raise and and get as much dollar gained uh, per inch gained. Uh, yeah. In this time spent that you're going to grow them, then butterfly koi. They always have a ridiculous resale value. Uh, and, and then once you have the rest of the farm dialed in, then you can swap them out for whatever fancy fish that you want. You know, I think a lot of times, too, people try to take on too many different things at once that are kind of complicated. And they'd be, they would crush it if they could focus on them one or two at a time. But they try to take on six or eight of them at a time, and it just ends up being not enough hours of the day. And it's not that they're incapable of accomplishing it because they absolutely are, they're, they're just overwhelmed. And I think that I, I see that quite a bit uh, uh, with that. But again, butterfly koi really is the, is the best way to go. Um, the other thing is that, is that, for instance, some of the medicinal crops that we grow um, are still technically Schedule 1 uh, in terms of the feds, and we can't actually get a meat processing license for those facilities. We can't kill the tilapia on site because the meat inspector is a federal employee and can't step foot on the property. So we have to actually, you know, have a separate tax ID number with a separate plot of land on the property that we can put that building uh, to have that separately regulated or that's all kosher or we have to partner up with a third party business. So that could be another issue if you uh, where pet trade licenses can be, you know, 1200 bucks or 700 bucks and away you go for the year. You don't have to worry about anything. They don't really hassle you or inspect you or anything unless you're you know, being accused of something. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're much easier to, to, to deal with than uh, meat processing or, you know, food processing licenses, again, depending on what type of crop someone wants to grow. And I would say this applies to small time backyard hobbyist grower for yourself too. So um, where I live, I don't know how much you know about my property, but it's, I'm pretty much sitting on limestone slab. I've got anywhere from two inches to 11 inches of dirt anywhere. And I've got, I, I don't mean rocks. I mean slab. 
So I've built a lot of above grade kind of tanks as backyard ponds. And I've got one that's 12 by 12 foot built out of four by fours and a pond liner. And I've got a platinum koi that I think I bought for like four bucks when he was this big at uh, Petco or whatever, swimming around in there. He's about three foot long now. Big, beautiful butterfly fins and tail. And I love having him in there, but I look at him, I'm like, how many bags of food is that? Right? <laughs> like that's, that's like four years of feeding all my fish over all the property. If I just sell that one and I've, I've got a buddy, he's sold plain old comic goldfish, but nicely colored ones for 50 bucks. He'll put them on like Craigslist and he calls them Asian heirloom carp. And, uh, you know, yuppies will buy them for their backyard ponds and stuff. And I think like that mindset of whether it's circumvading Circumventing some of the, 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 the legal issues, which I call status jujitsu, or whether it's how do I make my hobby slash homestead food production system fund all the inputs? So I, maybe I'm not producing all my inputs. I am buying in some stuff, but can I make, can I make it where the food really is free because all the inputs are paid for by the system? Absolutely. Yeah. Just like I was saying earlier about making those freeloading tropical fish pay their way to, uh, same thing with the koi. You know, if you can sell one or two of them a year and and have them fund the whole thing, then, then that's great. It means that you can spend your money on other stuff again, or hey, even uh, use it to fund new projects. I think a lot of people often don't realize that they're already good at something that can be quite profitable, especially when it comes to the animal trade and, and plant trade. You know, taking cuttings of plants and propagating them. Is, you know, again, especially with the all the lockdowns and the other craziness that we've had the last couple of years. Um, the home plant trade has exploded and the imports have really, you know, a lot of the rules for the plant imports have changed and gotten much more restrictive. So, um, you know, cloning and, and taking tissue cultures of your and, and cuttings of your plants at home that you already have big collections of often can be a good little side hustle. I have quite a few friends of mine doing that with their pitcher plants and other things that can be yeah. you know, quite profitable. And, hey, you already have a bunch in your house, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and that's like you're all you're doing is like I think that's one of the things that gets missed with aquaponics is how good it is for cloning. Like ebb and flow beds clone, and then you have this loose media. So when you pop that new rooted cutting out, it's a like you don't lose any roots. Like it just especially if you use Lika, and I always say it costs three times as much and it's ten times better. So you should probably use Lika at least. Like in a deep ebb and flow bed, I'll do like half lava rock and then I'll cap it with Lika because it's. It's just so much. It only hurts once, right? But like um, a plant I can think of that I clone the hell out of is uh, goji berry. So you open up like a Stark Brothers catalog and all. And these plants are $20 a plant. They send it to you. It looks like somebody stepped on it before they put it in the box. And you go out in the spring and you cut a bunch of green stem cuttings off of your, uh, your goji berries. You pop them in ebb and flow bed. And in two weeks, they have a huge bushy root system. And if you, you know, you don't always have to be full-time into a thing. It can be that side hustle. And you sell, let's say, 10 of them at 10 bucks is $100. That's a lot of fish food, right? You sell another 10 at 100 bucks, and there's all your CalMag and all your extra stuff for the year. And pretty soon, the food really, it's, even if it's a little bit profitable, then the food's really free because now you've covered your, your, your time, you know, investment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 
Uh, when I was in Jamaica, we were doing moringa trees. We were cloning those every three to four weeks. So even your fruit trees oh, wow. in the yard, you know, don't don't even think that just because it's a woodier crop that that wouldn't work as well. You know, obviously some some things aren't going to work, but even stuff that you think that would be a little more woodier than you think as well, even uh, can be you know quite do quite well in, in just even a flow through. Uh, we were doing those just in NFTs, big bam, uh, pieces of bamboo that were just NFTs with them stuck in there. So you don't you know you don't even have to get super fancy. That's a that's a really good one because people spend a lot of money on bamboo and you know if you have a good good place to grow it you can put in three or four rare varieties of bamboo and you have a constant source of new clone material uh, mulberry trees we've done those like you almost can't not root that any willow I mean you use willow to make rooting hormone basically so willows will just root uh, pop hybrid poplar will just root like that. Uh, all that stuff for selling fodder trees that Nick Ferguson, one of our council members, does a, a lot of business in his fodder trees for, you know, lambs and, and sheep and rabbits and things like that. Uh, another thing I've cloned like crazy, which is easy, but it's how fast you can do how many is sweet potatoes. So I grow a sweet potato every year and you cut a bunch of uh, tr- cuttings off. And I do a thing called I call it an air stack because I don't know what else to call it. And it's kind of uh, increases aeration and it acts as a solid trap at the same time. So I'll take like a five gallon bucket and I'll put a piece of PVC pipe into it and I'll have coming off one of the pumps, just a a straight return system. So it's pumping water back in and I'll drill a couple little holes in that pipe and that water hits that pipe. And then it's moving that water inside that bucket or a tub or anything that's submerged in the water. And then you're pushing oxygen out of those little holes. Well, most of your sediment ends up trapped in the container. And what I found is that you're kind of spraying that water into that pipe. You can take like two dozen sweet potato slips and stick them in the pipe at the top. And they're not actually really in the water. They're getting that spray. And those things, like you have to untangle them in a week with the roots they put on. And I've sold those like on next door just to neighbors. And you sell, you know, 10 sweet potato slips for 15 bucks. And how you do 10, there's $150. And it's just this little small because I don't want to make a thousand of them. I don't want the workload. I don't want to do that. I just want to help my neighbors and get a little bit of money at the same time every spring. So you do that one time. It's done for the year. Can I get some more? No. Come over and I'll give you one you can root it yourself, right? Like, there's so many ways to stack that stuff into these systems. Yeah. You know what has even more salicylic acid than uh, uh, willow even is aloe. Aloe actually has like four oh, times as much. I did not know that. know that. Yep. And you're right about things like the pitcher plants and stuff like that. Like I have a friend that's way big into that terrariums and all that. Like people spend a lot of money on that stuff. I mean, a ton of money on it. And that's like, you can grow 150 tomatoes or 10 pitcher plants and, and, and probably make more money on the 10 pitcher plants. Um, moving on from there. What do you feel? aquaponics really offers over other cultivation methods. I get a lot of flack sometimes from kind of the permaculture purists that everything needs to be in, you know, God's soil or whatever. I think there's a lot of advantages to aquaponics. So, um, you know, aquaponics, you're going to get a much higher turnover. We can grow lettuce in half the time or less. Um, We can grow uh, medicinal crops in uh, half the time in veg and a uh, uh, 15% faster in flour. Um, we can, we can get, and oftentimes things like peppers and cucumbers and things like that, we're getting fruit production within 30 to 40 to 35 days 
uh, where we're getting flowering production and, you know, immediate production of stuff that normally would take two, three, four months for that plant to mature. So um, it allows us to really accelerate the, the overall plant production, uh, allows us, you know, if we're doing a direct side-by-side between a, a soil and, and aquaponics, we get higher essential oil production, uh, especially when we're talking about medicinal compounds with certain crops, especially a lot of the ones that I like to grow. Um, um, you really do get a higher percentage of those medicinal compounds. If I'm trying to do that for a pharma, uh, you know, pharmaceutical uh, production uh, for uh, myself in terms of making my own medicines, or if I'm doing it for um, uh, production of trying to have the best tasting herbs for my kitchen, uh, either way, I want the best secondary metabolite production and essential oil production. So um, that's really where it excels is that speed of growth and then that, that overall potency of the plant. Um, you simply don't get it, but also you know, you're getting protein production out of that same space. And I think people often overlook that. That's why we do a lot of the work in Africa. It allows us to, you know, have somebody else come in and bankroll the, the, the plant production on the medicinal side, but allow us to feed the locals and have that kind of local um, uh, ability to do charity work as well by giving out that, that meat for free and feeding people for free that otherwise wouldn't have, you know, access to protein that way. So it allows us to kind of, I call it greed for good, right? We can take some of the industry yeah. and, and use it to fund good in the world. And I think that's what a lot of, especially with some of the medicinal plants that I uh, am very passionate about, uh, uh, you know, are really uh, all about spiritually is that you know, taking the money that we can from some of these industries and using it to create better a better world for all of us. Yeah, I think another thing that gets overlooked is, because it's so obvious that it gets overlooked and that's the lack of irrigation, right? So like this year, and I'm a, I think I'm a pretty damn good conventional gardener. My conventional gardens are hurting because it is so dry and so hot that even with good irrigation, it's still stressful as hell on the plants. My wicking beds that are tied into aquatic systems, they don't care. Uh, obviously an ebb and flow bed doesn't care. Like you might need to bring in and mitigate with some shade in some of these really hot summers that we have and all, but your system by design is self irrigating, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, so we end up on average functionally with about 18% of the water usage of soil. I know oftentimes people talk about 10%. Um, we found with, especially when you're doing different types of crops and things like that, um, plants have different transpiration rates, so how much they're absorbing water. So, so you know, especially if it's a hotter, hotter summer, uh, they're going to suck up that water at a little bit higher rate. So, um, about eight, about 18% of the water of, of a traditional soil garden. So again, if you're in an area that you have water restrictions or, or things like that, I often work with people in Jamaica and Barbados and same thing. They only have the water that comes from the rain. And then when that runs out, that runs out and they're screwed, right? So they only have a small pool of water. So they're trying to hold on to every last drop and sealing all that water below media beds or raft beds and only having the open surfaces being, you know, the, the sump where we dose stuff and the, fish tanks and everything else being covered really allows, or even having those in a separate insulated room that's more climate controlled to kind of reduce the evaporation even more on that allows us to have as little evaporation as possible and only using what the plant biomass is uptaking and, and really making the best use of that water, uh, especially with the changing world that we have and the summer's getting a little bit hotter. Um, you know, we're, it helps all of us, uh, you know, get all the plant production and food production that we want without uh, getting hassled by the man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it hassles one thing. The, the, the reality that it's, it's self regulating is even to me more important because water is a scarce resource. And so, and it's not just scarce in that you don't have it or that you're restricted on it. 
I have a well here. Theoretically, I can pump as much water as I want. I also have a three-acre property. I can't irrigate the whole property. I can't do it. Like, even what I've said, okay, we're going to irrigate these areas. So while I'm irrigating this spot, my well just doesn't have enough production to irrigate this spot over here. So even though it's theoretically unlimited, it isn't. And, and that, you know, during the spring and the fall, it's, it, I don't really need much of it. A little bit here and there goes a long way, but in the summer, it's, it's hard. And I told my wife with some of the problems we're having this year, I'm like, freaking by next year, everything's going to be a waking bed. One way or another, everything's tied into an aquatic system and everything's a waking bed or I ain't doing it or I'm going to grow cactuses in it or something. Like I'm not, I'm not doing this because it is, it is really a, a difficult thing in some climates to provide irrigation and you don't have to irrigate aquaponics because it is irrigated by the nature of being aquaponics. Well, the other nice thing too is, is I have a lot of friends that are growers and things like that as well. And they're like, well, how do you go away for four or five days and have your garden yeah. maintained? And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? Like you can't go away for three to five days, like, and not have yeah. a garden. Like, no, I don't want that. I want to be, my, I want to be able to go away for a week and come back and the garden's just going to maintain itself. I don't want to have to, sit there and baby it and have to water it. I mean, that's just like, too much work. You know, I, I got other stuff. To Maybe do. have somebody look other in and make sure it pumped it and die or something. But other than yeah, that, yeah, exactly. And, and, but you know, if you're, especially if you want to spend a couple of extra bucks now, you can get all the different ones now to connect to your Wi-Fi and things like that. And if there's something wrong with the pump, it'll notify you right away and you can go work. Especially, you know, it's something I often talk to people about is putting those little monitoring systems or getting the extra couple bucks on the higher end pumps for those because it's like an insurance policy, right? Like I, I know for a fact that my garden is good and my pump is, or my pond is good and, and my fish are happy and all that. And rather than having to, you know, find out afterwards and replace everything, it's a lot cheaper to spend an extra, you know, 75 bucks or whatever and, and, and uh, get a slightly more expensive pump that'll let you know. So something I think is often worth the extra couple bucks. Yeah, and as long as it's not a, 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 pow- a long-term power failure, I, I'm also of a believer, I don't have a system with a pump. I have pumps. So if one pump flat out dies, maybe the other one is not optimized to keep the system hunt, but it has that, that, that kind of buffer of overhead of it'll be all, I won't come out an hour and a half later and find dead fish. Cause when it's 105 degrees here, you don't have a lot of forgiveness in a system going down when you're stocking it at the levels you need for, for aquaponics or even just aquatics. Right. But if you have that smaller pump that's doing something else, that gives you that kind of like freeboard on a dam, so to say. The other thing that we did, uh, we did this a lot in Africa because in Africa, if my pump fails, it could be a month or more before yeah. I can get a replacement, Not right? Pump. So what we do is we have a separate loop and what we have is it's called a, a motorless pump. So it's just an impeller that has a drive shaft with a water sealed bearing on it. And we can put a lawnmower. I could put a drill. I can put anything I want on anything it. So, on if, someone, it, right. if, so if someone's a homesteader and, or a, a prepper and really wants to have, you know, kind of a, man, I can, I can make this run on anything. You can absolutely get those housings that are, that are built for the different plumbing sizes uh, online that, that you, again, you can take any motor that you want to and stick it on that drive shaft and, and away you go. So that can be really good, especially when we was working in Africa, because then it didn't matter. I could run down to town and I could find something that'll run on. We can put a belt on it and we're good to go. Yeah. I, I, that, what that makes me think of is maybe it would work together, not for a full-time thing, but as a redundancy. 
I've recently started getting into 3D printing more, and right now I'm pissed off because I can't get adhesion to my bed and shit's warping and, and screwing up my prints. But uh, as I started looking more into what, what you can build that other people have designed on Thingiverse, there's people that have built windmills, and, and, and they're trying to make power, and those windmills are just not that big to make that much electrical power. But I was like, boy, that thing would move some water. Right, and so I mean, you won't move unless the wind's blowing. But the wind blows a lot of time, and it's just extra moving water, and extra moving water is extra oxygen, and that's never bad. And I was thinking, like, there's probably a way to do that. So those two could probably go together. But yeah, I mean, if you if you had to operate, you know, like on life support only with a system like that, uh, put the kid out there on a bicycle or something, you know, <laughs> one way or another, you're gonna get by. So that's a cool hack too. Um, oh yeah. We had somebody in chat mention prickly pear cactus. We've actually grown prickly pears from seed even in aquaponics. So you can grow cactuses and other things that you would think aloe, uh, dragon fruit, things that are typically desert plants, uh, even um, uh, saffron. I know some a lady in Italy who's growing commercial saffron and getting, you know, three and four harvests a year of saffron. Uh, so, if, you know, you can get into crazy uh, high-density plantings of, of high-end crops and, and, and really, you know, make a, a, a large amount of money. There's a lot of people that haven't quite figured out all the different funky crops that you can grow at crazy accelerated rates yet in aquaponics. So if you have something that you're good at growing at it and you're listening to this show, give it a whirl. You might, you know, find, be the next person to, to do something like that because saffron traditionally is a one to two time a year uh, a crop and they're getting it, you know, almost double that for something that's, you know, $1,700 a pound or whatever it is. So Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the most expensive herb in the world or something, or spice in the world. It's insane how much, because it's just, I think each crocus flower gives you like four stamens or something, and that's that's what you get. But we've all, you know, when you had a recipe called for, you go out and you buy this standard size spice ball, you open up, there's an envelope in there, and there's this little pinch, and it was like freaking 16 bucks, right? So, it's yeah, it is very high dollar. And you've dropped some oddball crops. You got any more oddball crops? Because... I think one of the cool things is, let's say that I want to try something like that. If I want to do it in a wicking bed, then I just make one more wicking bed and tie it into my system. Ebb and flow, I just make, you just extend and add this one, you know, like I use a lot of the uh, wicking beds I'll build with the 50-gallon Rubbermaid uh, structural foam stock tanks. They're they're perfect. They last forever. If you decide you don't want to use an aquaponics, plug the hole and go use them as a stock tank again. And you can test this idea with one little bed. Like I've seen people grow the shit out of ginger. That's another high dollar crop. Is there anything that you found that's like kind of high dollar or really unique or novel? Because I think another thing is maybe it's not super high dollar, but if like you're a farmer's market person and you're the only person that has it, now everybody's there to find that thing and you can sell them your other stuff too. Sure. So, um, uh, you know, you can grow garlic at a, a much accelerated rate in a, a aquaponics. That'd be one where if you did have extra space and a, a couple of extra larger beds that you could dedicate for a longer period of time, that's one. We've grown enormous elephant garlic in, you know, four months, um, you know, oh, which wow. is way faster than you normally get in garlic. It'll germinate in two to three days in aquaponics, which is faster than about the month that you normally get for garlic in a soil. So, um, uh, that would be one. Um, uh, as far as other funky crops, um, uh, uh, we did uh, these little um, uh, tiny pickles, like miniature pickles. I, don't, I can't remember the name of the the, the type Durkins? of pickle it was. Um, yeah, I, I guess it was. They were they were like as addictive as potato chips, and we we couldn't grow them fast enough. So that would be one that sold a ludicrous amount and just just grew ridiculously well. Um, uh, those those little tiny pickles. 
Um, uh, mustard greens, that's another one, the fancy mustard greens. Um, we were often getting, you know, 40, 50 cents a piece for the mustard greens, the fancy frou-frou ones. Um, the biggest thing I would just say for people if they're trying to do this for, for financial return on that kind of side is go and talk to your chefs. Go to the different restaurants, you know, an hour or two before they normally open, especially the higher-end ones, and just ask the the, the, the chef staff what – a lot of times they'll, they'll let you in and ask them what they want to grow and then go just grow what they want, and you can get a really good price. That's what's going to get you the best price in return on that. Um, as far as medicinal crops, though, osha root is going to be the one that I would recommend the most if you can get a wild plant and transplant it. But that's an antiviral root. Uh, can you spell a, that for people? So they, uh, uh, yeah, it's like OSHA, just like the government organization, uh, O-S-H-A. It's also okay. called uh, Lovage, I think is another name of it. Um, but uh, the wild OSHA in North America uh, and the different ones that you can get for medicinal purposes that you can grow um, is a strong antiviral, and it smells like molasses. You can grow it, uh, and in a year or two, you'll have this wonderful, giant, thick root um, in aquaponics, it takes about seven to 14 months to grow, but it's a strong antiviral and you can take it for when you get sick uh, and things like that. Um, mullen would be another one that would be a good medicinal to grow. It's good for your lungs. Uh, if you have any kind of chest infection or, or, or lung infection or sinus infection, you can smoke it the way you would tobacco or other smokable plants and, um, and it'll help clear your lungs out. Um, and then um, uh, yarrow would be another one that's another good antiviral. Um, you can for skin purposes like mullen you can also use on the skin um, you can make a salve out of mullen that's very powerful against staph infection so those would be the things that if you're going for a home sustainable medicine cabinet kind of thing i would grow um, and then on the profit side i mean watercress if you have a high density enough sandwich shops to sell to really it grows so freaking fast in aquaponics that you know it, it's, it's even more profitable than lettuce if you have the sales base uh, microgreens would be the other one where if you have a large population base and you can move it, just remember you have 48 to 72 hours to sell them or they're useless. So, um, you know, you better have an installed, you know, customer base or you're screwed. Don't grow them and then think you're going to sell them. Uh, don't do that with any crop. Make sure that you go and you, you ask around whoever it is you expect to purchase this stuff, ask them what they want. And if you're not growing that, then you're not growing the right thing. Like it doesn't matter if you're the best lettuce grower in the world. If they don't want to buy lettuce or they can buy lettuce at half the price, they're not going to buy it from you. Uh, it doesn't matter if it tastes better and, 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 you know, all these other wonderful things that you're doing for the community. They don't, you know, especially in the economy right now, they don't care, right? They just, they're, yeah. they're looking for stuff that they can't buy from other people. So that, that's the number one thing I could say to people on that. I think the, the, the question asked then too is like, what do you want to buy? What do you, what are you buying now that you're not happy with? But also like, what do you think you can't get that you would love to have, especially like these farm to table kind of yuppie level restaurants, these higher end restaurants you want to sell to like they always said in, in the sales industry, I used to do sales training. So you can't sell the ignorance. If it's, if it's willful ignorance, you can't sell to it and you can't sell the poverty, right? Like you, you I don't care how good a sale, if the person ain't got no money that so you need to identify that immediately and go to another prospective uh, customer because people without money can't buy stuff. So um, you on, want on the higher-end restaurants because they have money. Like when you know when you say, well, this is going to be X dollars per pound or whatever, they're just like, okay, I need 10 pounds. There's no haggling or arguing, especially if you're the only one that has it. And there is a lot of stuff like that. Like the watercress thing, I think what people don't realize is it has the shelf life of, like, oxygen. It just dies. Like, But if you figure out how to package it, like, 
I was thinking about this, if you have some sort of like large, uh, like, uh, like a Sterilite or like Tupperware with holes that are designed to fit net cups. So that as you harvest your, you don't even cut it. You just drop your net cups in and you can deliver it that way and they cut it and use it. And you can pick that up and re- recycle for them. Now you're delivering watercress that's fresh, that stays fresh for at least a few days. And, you know, maybe you're delivering once or twice a week. Like there's nothing like that out there. And it's, it's easy to grow and hard to deliver. That, yeah. That's my experience with watercress. Like you can't grow watercress, just quit. You, you, you really, you just, you're not going to, then you can't grow like yourself. You're going to die. Like you can't, like it is that easy. And once you get it going, pinch it and stick it and you make more. Oh yeah. The, the two things I would say that is the, the other extreme end would be, Oh crap, man, I had an aphid infestation and it just ravaged my grow and everything's covered. And none of this is sellable. Um, you know what you do? You call up your local animal safari park or your local zoo. You call them up and say, hey, I got a bunch of lettuce that I want to donate. Do you care if it's got aphids on it? They usually don't care. Then you do yeah. a little PR thing saying, hey, we donated a bunch of lettuce to the zoo. Nobody needs to know that it's covered in aphids. It's fine. No. Uh, and then now you 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 have a good PR situation. Uh, you, you turn a bad situation into good PR. And we see a lot of aquaponic farms doing that occasionally as well. Um, uh, and not to give away a little secret on that one, but, um, as far as, um, increasing shelf life on leafy greens, a quick tip on that for aquaponic people. Um, so traditionally in aquaponics, you're taught for P, uh, you know, pH starts to drift down over time with the nitrogen, nitrogen cycle. As nitrogen gets processed from ammonia to nitrate to nitrate, it gradually lowers the pH of the water as the chemical process happens among other chemical processes. Um, instead of using potassium carbonate or bicarbonate or potassium hydroxide, and calcium carbonate or calcium hydroxide for your pH up, uh, alternating, use potassium silicate and uh, calcium carbonate. Uh, that's the, a much, much better uh, combination, the potassium uh, and the silica. The silica in particular helps increase mold resistance, but can increase shelf life seven to nine days for most of your leafy greens, um, uh, simply by having that silica levels uh, above uh, 45 to 60 uh, parts per million, depending on the type of crop. So, um, that really can you know make a tremendous difference, especially if you're doing it commercially or even just want to have longer shelf stability for your stuff at home. Um, I, we've also noticed an increase in um, the time it takes to uh, bolt from heat. So uh, the plants don't bolt as quickly from from heat stress, and they don't um, have as much stress from from frost. They seem to be more frost resistant uh, if there is a bit of a cold night uh, and you get a bit of exposure to them. So uh, really is a much better nutrient regimen with the potassium silicate. Uh, dose to the root system rather than the potassium carbonate or hydroxide that's traditionally taught. That's, that's, I mean, guys, he's dropping like the kind of thing that it takes you years and years to learn this one little thing. And he's dropping like 10 of those through this episode. So y'all might want to go back and listen to this one again, because each one of those can save you money, time and frustration. Um, you, we talked about some of the oddball crops. I heard you mention trees though. You, you guys are doing trees uh, with oh, aquaponics, yeah. what's that all about? Yeah, so we were doing 55-gallon drums, and then we were building a, a media guard that would slide down, and we were doing just regular old flood and drain kits the way that you do with the timers uh, with a, a, a stem and then the other one at the bottom of the, the, the grow bed so that the water would fill through here and fill up to the top of the stem and overflow and go down so that we don't overfill it. Um, and then just above that would be the soil layer. Uh, and then we were top watering with that and then putting a little cover crop of just thyme or um, oregano. Thyme and oregano both have a lot of um, 
symbiotic uh, mycorrhizal fungi that are naturally on those uh, two crops that are heavily symbiotic with any of your woodier crops, so fruit trees, peppers, um, any you know a lot of your favorite medicinal plants and things like that, all are um, uh, very symbiotic with the different ones. Uh, B. irregularis and many of the other important uh, mycorrhizal fungi species uh, happen to ha- inhabit those uh, crops quite quite significantly. It can be a great reservoir for boosting the crop production. Remember, the woodier the crop, the more it relies on soil mycorrhizal fungi for that lignin production and that that you know just biomass production on that, those woodier types of plants. So that's why it's more important to have a, a soil layer for those woodier crops than it is for non-woody crops. That's why, you know, lettuce grows really well on a raft bed, but fruit tree is not going to grow all that great. And no. it, it has nothing to do with the weight or keeping it stabilized. It's just, it's the wrong environment for the roots. It needs no things, but it doesn't get that way, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, another plant that I've done a lot of symbiotic growing with, both vegetables and for woody crops, shrubs, trees, is uh, comfrey. It's just it's a, just a fantastic. It's a deep mining uh, accumulator, and it's uh, the beauty of it. When you get too much of it, you just cut it and throw it right back on the ground, and now you're using it as a mulch uh, contributor as well. And then we use it medicinally. And honestly, the grow beds and things like that that I, I grow it in is the only way I can grow it on the property because wherever I grow it, like out with my regular in-ground trees and stuff, the ducks will kind of leave it alone, and then, like, one day they're like, you know what, guys, it's time to, to medicate with some comfrey, and they'll just wipe it all out, you know. So if I want any of it for myself, that's the way we've been able to grow it. And we use it to make uh, basically green manure tea as well to, to water the other gardens and things like that. So there's tons of that symbiotic thing, and I think that's, like, don't give that up just because you're doing aquaponics. Like, plant stuff together. I know they always say if it – if it, if it grows together, it goes together with cooking. But I think that, like, it doesn't have to go together with cooking. There's a lot of natural symbiosis out there, so it's good to hear you mention that. I know you have a podcast, and your website is potentponics.com, potentponics.com. Got a YouTube channel and stuff like that. I've been doing podcasting now 14 years, and I have to say that I've learned as much by doing the podcast as, like, researching for the podcast and all my projects. What is all your years of podcasting, uh, blogging, but also like consulting and working with clients. What are some of the biggest things that you've, you've learned doing that you don't think you maybe would have learned if you were only doing it for yourself? Sure. I would say just the biggest thing actually kind of transitions perfectly from what we were just talking about before this was uh, I was just going to mention that the, the comfrey ferment is a great way to, to for your garden as well. And a fermented, just a great products that are made for, from that. But uh, learning about Korean natural farming and natural farming in general and hybridizing the soil methodologies with the aquatic methodologies and, and realizing that aquaponics is much more like living aquatic soil than it is hydroponics with fish. Um, you know, chemistry wise and biology wise, it, it behaves much more like soil and, you know, that biodiversity is giving a positive effect on the plants much more similarly to soil. Uh, I guess that would be the, the quick and easy uh, takeaway on that. But uh, with the, with the, the show, I've been doing the show for six years. Um, it's been a, a really great ride. Uh, we just had uh, all, di- all different types of different people on the show. We've started our own uh, international uh, aquaponic cannabis conference where we have people from around the world come on and speak on you know, medicinal crops and, uh, from around the planet, um, uh, different universities, commercial producers, and all different types of things um, uh, come on there. And uh, it really has just been a, a wonderful way to learn all different types of things I never would have thought of. Um, I think the, the, the biggest thing I could tell people is, is that, you know, figure out what works for you in your garden and take a little bit from this guy and a little bit from this guy and a little bit and 
build your own hybrid method that works good for your lifestyle, the time that you have for your garden and your, your homestead or your facility and, and, and what's going to work well for the, for maximizing and min maxing your different methodologies for the different crops that you're growing, right? Like if you're doing lots of, um, uh, livestock and things like that, definitely look into green natural farming because it's going to reduce the smell of your property. It's going to make the animals healthier. You have a lot of natural inputs that you can easily quick turn into fertilizers for your soil garden. Uh, if you aren't into it, again, check out natural farming, whatever methodology that you want to check out uh, on that. Uh, you're you're going to learn all different types of things via soil or aquaponics grower. Um, we've, we've had, got you know over 80 percent more minerals since we started hybridizing some of the imo inputs into our uh, indigenous microorganism inputs into our aquaponics uh, we've learned about how to treat things like e coli and salmonella without destroying the cycle of the system and and and, and, and treating them in utero with the system being completely online the whole time uh, and other things that we never would have dreamed of doing we're actually starting to treat now viral diseases um, chris trump has had a great success treating mosaic virus and cucumbers uh, and um, tomatoes uh, with uh, uh, lactobacillus so uh, and, and IMO treatments. So um, we're really starting to see things that traditionally were taught uh, in septoria as well. Once it's beyond uh, uh, starting to get infected, we can cure with IMO uh, and, and lactobacillus. So um, these are things that traditionally were taught as, well, once you get it, man, that soil is bad and, like, you can't do anything with it now. Well, we can cure that now and keep rolling and actually still harvest that plant at the end of the year. So these are completely different ways of thinking about approaching these problems. And I think that um, especially things like IPMO, which is um, collecting local indigenous microorganisms that are prey on insects. So basically we're taking rice and insect frass or some of the collected insects that we find on the property. We're doing, um, uh, well, just for the sake of example, 300 grams of insect frass and insect parts uh, undead insects and 700 grams of rice. We're going to put that into a rice cooker. We're going to cook that uh, for um, about 80% of the way that you'd normally cook rice. So whatever time you cook it, about 80, 85% of the way. Once that's fully sterilized now and steam sterilized in that, uh, that crock pot, you're going to take that and put it into a wooden slatted box. You can use plastic, but wooden's better. Um, about the size of a shoe box. Um, with a, 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 you want to put some chicken wire on top just to keep the, the rodents out of it. Um, and then put all that inside the box, put the chicken wire on top. Now you're going to put that out into an undisturbed forest area of your property or a, a garden area that's been well established for a long time. Or if you have a little meadow or, or a forested area of your property that's been completely untouched, that's even better. Uh, put that in the most biodiverse area that you can find in leaf litter, scrape away the leaf litter a little bit and stick it right on the ground. Uh, and then if you can find some of the mycorrhizal fungi, so uh, look around and some of the branches and leaves around that you just disturbed. If it has white on the bottom, looks like spider webs or something like that, put that on top of the chicken wire and that spores from the mycorrhizal fungi, that, that's what the white is, it's actually a fungi, um, will drop onto the rice and colonize it. So we're trying to collect the fungi that feed on the insect frass that we've now infused that insect into the rice, which has a starch that can help feed it as well. So we're collecting those local fungi that feed on those insects and then propagating them onto the rice. Now we're going to take that rice after four to five days, uh, once it's fully colonized with fungi, uh, we're going to take that back out. We're going to weigh it uh, on a scale, and then we're going to measure out uh, uh, equal parts plus about 2% weight of sugar. And then we're going to combine that all together and mix it in, into a, a, a bucket or container that we can air, air, air seal. And then that's going to stabilize that. So now we have the fungi that we've collected from the forest 
feeds on the insects and it's stabilized because the sugar locks out via osmotic pressure the available oxygen for that fungi. So it puts it into the suspended animation state because there's no oxygen. Now we can take a scoop of that, uh, a, a, a tablespoon of that, and put it into water, stir it around, uh, uh, and brew it for a couple of hours with an air stone. And now we can spray that on the garden, and it basically applies the spores of the fungi that feeds on the local insects in that area. So you can actually build your own biocontrol pesticides from in natural ways like that that I think – Moving to that type of methodology can be groundbreaking, especially places where, like when I was working in Africa, they don't have money for this stuff. They, that can get them yeah. off the Monsantos and people that are controlling their governments and things like that there through, through financials. But here it can help, you know, give people the, their, the, the freedom to control their gardens again and, and compete against pretty much anything that you can throw at them. We were, we had big issues with this in Zimbabwe when the virus that shall not be named started breaking out across the world. Uh, we got sealed off there for a bit and, uh, we couldn't import anything and we had no way to control these grasshoppers that were eating the, basically to eat the Cambrian layers off the plants and the plants would flop over. And we had yeah. nothing that we could purchase that was, you know, I could then export the plants with uh, afterwards that we could purchase there. So we ended up using that, this method to completely eliminate the grasshoppers in over 10 hectares uh, of production. And um, it worked extremely well. It had no negative impact on the local biology um, you could drink the stuff. It's not going to kill you. You know, you, it's not the best tasting stuff, but you can yeah. drink it, right? Can you tell me yeah. other pesticides that work that well that you can drink? No. That's amazing. Right? I'm like gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually pull that piece out and do a short with that segment right there. Going to do an additional piece of content as a short standalone because that is. That's I have a slide I can up. send you for that too, if it helps. That'd you. be great. Yeah, send that to me after we're done here. And uh, when I do that short, I'll fade that slide in and out when, when you're talking, because that is badass. Uh, I do uh, Johnson Sioux bioreactor composting, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that's what I do with all of the uh, all the material that comes out of my chicken coop and duck coop every year. And I basically build these great big six-foot round piles of compost. I mix in some of the compost from the pit that they get all their leavings in and stuff. And, I mean, I just listen to that and go as fungally dominated as that stuff is. It'd be great to take a baseball sized chunk of that stuff and infuse that into that Johnson Sioux uh, compost as well. And then supercharge that whole thing because it's already fungal. I mean, when it, when it flushes, it just flushes with every weird mushroom you probably shouldn't eat that you've ever seen. Um, and then a, like a really low tech version of that, that I've done, I got this from Nick Ferguson when we go hiking and stuff and we're out in the woods on trails and every, every time I see a, like some, you know, rotting wood, some fungus on it, whatever, we just grab different pieces of that and we just built a big giant pile of it in the shade of the one side of the uh, building that never gets any, uh, sun on it and we throw a light tarp over it. We keep it wet and it just becomes this crumbled pile of this woody goodness and we'll use that. But you're, you're talking a whole nother level of uh, alchemy right there. That's, that's, that's badass. Can oh, we yeah. uh, go ahead? This is, this is the basis for, for natural farming. So in natural farming, we do the same thing for our soil where instead of doing that with the insect frass as well, we, we don't add the insects and we just do a whole thing of rice and we're just collecting the fungal feeding mycorrhizal fungi that are you know good for the plant root system. So, you know, the, the idea is just to learn how to utilize what's already on your property to further um, mineralize the, what what you have in your gardens, right? So a lot of these places, you have to remember, a lot of properties have been cut down. They have grass. They have 
they've been, you know, torn up and all this other stuff. So the local biology hasn't had a chance to really heal. But a lot of this stuff, if you go into a forest, right, the forest is pretty balanced soil on most, most forests that are, you know, more than three or 400 years old because the microbial diversity is high enough to where, um, you know, you, you, you it's going to create all the different minerals that it needs. It has all the parts per million of the iron and the manganese and the molybdenum and the calcium, all of that's naturally being produced. We've kind of taken that away by reducing the biodiversity of our properties. So by increasing that biodiversity back in the areas that we want, you know, you apply that to a golf course or to your lawn, you'll have a greener lawn than you've ever had before, right? So this isn't just for gardening. This isn't just for people growing medicinal crops. This is great for your turf as well. Like it's great for your fruit trees. It's great for your old oak trees, especially if you have, um, uh, uh, Old and when I was in Jamaica, we healed a bunch of old mango trees and got them producing. It is like hundred and some year old mango tree. It was hardly producing anymore. We hit it with a big batch of IMO, which is just doing that rice collection with the local forest microbes for the root system, uh, and then stabilizing it with the sugar, and then giving it a dose of that stabilized water each week uh, 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 with the microbes. And within three months, that thing was producing flowers again, heavier than it did they'd ever seen it produce before. Um, wow. Same thing with uh, banana trees. When I was in Zimbabwe, they had this, uh, some kind of disease that was on them. So we did a local collection at a different farm that had healthy banana trees. And then we took that microbes from the healthy trees and put them on the sick trees and it fixed it. Uh, Chris Trump is the person that taught me the IPMO, uh, and many of the other Korean natural farming methods that I have. He's a good personal friend of mine who you should definitely get him on your show sometime. Um, he's kind of the English speaking guru of gurus when it comes to natural farming. He treated a whole 700 acre macadamia nut farm. They were, you know, kind of running out of money. And when the fertilizer prices uh, went up back in the early, I don't know, whatever, 2000s it was. And he, they, out of pure desperation, decided to try it because they didn't have the money to afford the fertilizer that year for their family for the macadamia nut farm. And they had heavier production off. They had 125% of the production they had ever had before uh, uh, once everything got established. So um, it really can produce significantly more. And now the whole island of Hawaii there is, is switching over to his style of macadamia nut production. Now he's teaching people in Asia and other parts of the world how to, how to do this fruit tree production where you're just collecting the, you go into areas that have healthy trees or healthy forests, collecting the microbes, applying them to your garden and, and basically fixing the species that are extinct in your, in your soil so that you have that fully biodiverse, um, you know, ecology in your soil to unlock all the minerals that your plants need. Amazing. Let's do a few questions from the audience here, man. Uh, Packrat says, I'm not quite sure what he's getting at here. Maybe you'll, it makes sense to you. Uh, it says, uh, do the inevitable seasonal changes likely mitigate against deviations from traditional designs that aren't planned around such features? Do you get exactly what he's asking there? I'm, I don't really. Sure. So I think he's asking about how do you plan for seasonal changes uh, okay. or how do you factor that in? Um, so for aquaponics, we traditionally just keep everything indoors. Or if we're going to do outdoors, we'll do a hybrid system where we'll have maybe part of the plumbing that can run inside uh, uh, from an outdoor pond so that we can still do some type of cooler weather crop or, or cold weather crop in the wintertime. Uh, it just depends on how cold it gets outside from wherever we're at. Um, if we're doing in Canada or Alaska, things like that, where I've worked at before, um, we'll do things where the ponds and fish tanks are in the floor, and then we'll have a platform above all the fish tanks where all the grow beds are. So we'll have yeah. 
that we can raise and lower. And that acts, again, as a thermal battery. We can store the heat in the water, the fish tanks, and the grow beds. And as long as you get 80% or more of the total top-down square footage as water, you can actually heat that greenhouse extremely efficiently. We heated a 50 by 30 by uh, 18-foot greenhouse in the front range of Colorado just outside of Boulder for uh, 83 pounds of propane for an entire winter, which is pretty insane. So, um, you know, and we did have a, a solar water heater on it as well to, uh, on the heat exchanger because the solar water heater would work. And then when, you know, the gas was kind of a, in case of a, an emergency kind of situation when it was too dark. What I'm going to try this year with one of my systems, I build those Johnson Sioux uh, compost piles. I usually build like three or four a year all in one day. Uh, I'm going to reserve the material. I'm going to build one a month and they'll hit about 150, 160 in the center as they begin to process and they'll come down. And what you do with those is when they go under 90, you throw worms in them and let the worms finish the job and you never turn it. So with never turning it and they're already around configuration, I'm going to build them right next to my, my eight by 16 pond. I'm going to put a small pump in there with a little controller on it. So it doesn't run if the water gets too warm and I'm going to run water and PEX tubing inside those compost pits and deposit it back in the water and, I don't need that system to be 75 degrees. I just need it to be not below freezing. That's, that's all I need out of it is to keep it above freezing in the, you know, the week or two that we'll get two or three times a year where it really freezes up the system hard. And I think there's a, a ton of opportunities like that. Like I have to make, see, I have to make that compost anyway. Cause I have a huge ton of deep litter that comes out of the coop anyway. The pond is right next to the coop for a reason. Uh, what I'm doing with that pond, this is, this is kind of a cool different thing. I actually have a 50 gallon stock tank that the ducks can swim in a few times a week. I, I keep, and it has a drain and I drain duck poo nutrient into that pond. And then in that pond, I'm surface growing water hyacinths and then I'm feeding the water hyacinths to the ducks and the geese in a pit. And all of the leftovers from that go into those compost piles. So that whole system's kind of wrapped together like that. And I, I, I read a study about how they were using water hyacinths because it's a highly invasive, dangerous weed or whatever that's not going to invade anything where I'm at. Um, not on my property anyway. ain't going nowhere. It's dry everywhere else. And uh, they were testing. They were determining that the water that they were putting from the ducks, because factory, the ducks like in a contained area, right? So they're producing all this waste. They make a lot of waste. The water coming out of this system that they cleaned with water hyacinth was cleaner than the water going into the system from the, from the source. And then the ducks were eating the water hyacinth and they were getting less disease and stuff like that as well. So like, I'm like, I'm going to do this on a small scale. So I think there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, Ron says, do you see any chemical leaching problems when using PVC plastics and aquaponics? I've never worried about it. How do you feel about that? No, so so the, the thing with plastic is plastic as a leach. Most water potable PVC has a pretty ridiculously low leach rate. It's like seven parts per billion per year. Or, I don't. Someone else probably knows the exact amount, but it's something ridiculously low. Uh, and and it's just it's not really an issue if you're heating it up or if you're getting a long term sun exposure. Then yeah, and if you're super worried about it, just paint your pipes or cover them with a veneer. You can get the little the bamboo little um, strips and stuff that you can put over them and just wrap it around the pipe, or just spray paint it. Even is, is perfectly fine just to get the you know, get the UV protection on it. Um, but other than that, you know, you're not going to have any leach rate. Remember, there's that thin coating on the outside, which is a hardened coating. There's like a foam 
kind of in-between layer, and then there's another thin, hard layer on the inside, right? So even if you get degradation on that outside, there's still two more layers that it has to get through before it's actually going to touch the water. So it's, you know, it's it's not an issue. We've never had it. There was, we have had two customers that had, um, you know, some kind of chemical heavy metal sensitivity. Um, the one person we built them with electrical grade PVC, which is about two to three times the price. So if you're super... You know, if it's something that concerns you, um, there is a solution for it, but it is much more expensive. The other option you can go is do the whole thing in glass and use glass fittings, but, uh, and, and silicone it. And that is possible. It's a little easier, uh, for some people, but, um, you know, you gotta be comfortable assembling glass plumbing, which not everyone yeah, is. I'm so not, I'm hot. I'll cut my, I know I will. I'll mess something up. Uh, I, I'm not worried about it much. Now, one thing I've done and it was initially, um, because my wife loves weed eaters and breaks stuff, but there's places where I'll have almost all the pipes on the ground. You have like one bit where the pipe comes up and it might be like, let's say a piece of half inch. And what I would do with it is take a piece of one inch. Cause it's only a small part of the whole run. And I'd sleeve it with a piece of one inch. So you've got the half inch inside the one inch. There's no water in the one inch. It's just, it was there to protect the one inch from the weed whacker. So that when she weeded around a pond or something, she didn't crack the pipe. And then the side benefit of that was PVC gets brittle in the sun, which causes leakage, but it also causes failures and breaks and cracks. And so it kind of all stemmed together. So that's another thing you can do with little parts of your system. Otherwise you're doubling the pipe for no oh, real yeah. The other thing I would, the other recommendation I would have for plumbing, and this is, you know, a lot of parts of the country have earthquakes to, you know, some extent on the West Coast. And then also anyone who's, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of the smaller earthquakes here in the middle of the country. Um, is putting your plumbing in uh, like sand um, uh, so that when you have that liquefaction from the, the ground shaking, uh, uh, you know, if you have a little trench around it and you have that sand around it, the pipe will shift around in the sand because the sand gets very, you know, flows more like a liquid in that scenario. And it doesn't get that tight pressure. If you have hard rock around it or, or larger stones, it'll snap the pipe. But if you have that softer uh, material or even perlite, you can pack perlite around it. It's another good way to do it. It allows it that ability to shift around. It doesn't snap on you so much. So especially Oregon, California, Washington, Nevada, places like that where you do have a lot more uh, seismic activity. Uh, I, I would also say in, in, in my thing. experience with plumbing um, on your return lines, go as big as you can afford when you do the installation, I have never heard a single person say, gee, I wish my return lines were smaller diameter. Overbuild the return capacity because in my experience, return lines are where the majority of things like overflow problems and stuff like that happen. And I'd also add, like, if you have a well or rain catch or something where you can fill your tank from without doing any kind of uh, dechlorination, which we didn't talk about today or anything, um, Float valve in your sump. <laughs> that's like, that's like 101, but man, that has saved my butt so many times when you've had something clog up or have a problem. Cause when you, like when I asked you, what have you learned by teaching and doing and all? Like one of the things I learned is no matter how much you're sure you can prevent a failure, nature's like, guess what, buddy? You don't know shit. Like I had in one of my little NFT bases, I had like three, four inch pipes with like 20 net cups in each one of them. And the little sump for it that was coming off another system was 
almost completely drained in the middle of a workshop. And I go out there, I'm like, one of the students jacked with it. Do I tell them not to tell? I was all mad, you know, and I like look and start to try to figure out, well, what happened? Did somebody over, overfeed the valve and play with the valve or something? And finally I realized at the top of it, the first drain down to the next pipe, there's something in there. And I'm pulling and pulling, and it was really hard to get it out because it sucks. I finally get it out. It was a dadgone tree frog that decided to live in the pipe, and he died, and he got sucked headfirst into the – I don't think he died. I think he just got sucked headfirst into the bulkhead, and then he swelled up, and he clogged the system so the top pipe overflowed. So, yeah, man, float valves too. Uh, I don't worry about the leaching very much, though, like you were saying. Pumps, uh, 120 volt electric versus gravity or RAM or solar. What, what are your thoughts? I think it's, you know, what's right for the system, no? Yeah, so you really just have to match the gallons per hour flow rate. Um, always go with a beefier pump than what you think you need. So if you think you need a 750 gallon per hour pump, get a thousand per hour pump and then just put a bleeder line on it. You can always put it right after your pump, put a T with a, a valve and then a, a 90 degree that just dumps it right back into the sump. So it recirculates that water to an extent as well, which gives you some circulation in there. Um, you can also full leave that full open and close your other line and just, you know, circulate it if you're trying to stir something in or whatever, if it's a smaller system, um, but it just allows you to cut the flow rate. So if I want to, you know, shut down, you know, the grow beds for a minute and just, take all the pressure off of that. I can do that without having to shut the pump off necessarily, which is nice. Um, as far as pumps go, I'm a big fan of Danner pumps. They're, they make the Pond Master uh, pumps and some of the other ones. Um, yeah. I found, I've found i worked with them for a long time in the pet trade. Uh, uh, a lot of them I've seen work in three to five years in salt water. Um, they're relatively easy to repair, and you can buy the parts for them um, if, if they do fail. Um, and then after that, if you're going to go up on the bigger systems, I really like the Sparis pumps from uh, Pentares. Um, they're really nice because they have, uh, you can get them with and without the Bluetooth connection so that you can see what's going on, but they're adjustable flow rate. So I can just go up there and adjust how fast I want the pump to go. So I can, you know, if I want to run it much faster, much slower, depending on whatever it is I'm doing maintenance wise on the system, I, I can back that off. I can also visually see when the pump is starting to get clogged as a pre-filter. Um, if the pump is drawing a higher voltage on that and a, and a higher RPMs, I can immediately tell that that filter needs to be. You know, I find that when people have a, a same opinion and derive doing the same thing, but haven't talked to each other about it, there's usually a reason. So, like, I've got up on the video screen right now uh, one of my recent item of the day reviews, and this Danner pump, and it's the pump I've standardized as my large system pump on my entire property. So I have multiple systems. I use the same pump in all of them, and I always keep at least one extra one on the shelf. And that way, if any one of them dies – it, they'll work anywhere. And, I, you know, a pump of a equivalent volume will work in any system, right? But when you use the exact same form factor pump in all your systems, when a pump dies, you know, you're pulling a union apart, pulling a pump out, putting it back in, and it, there's no change in your configuration. I mean, that hot swap capability. So I use those, and I use for the little ones, I use Allied Aqua. Uh, but it's just funny that you, that's why I was laughing when you said it, that, you know, you're, you're naming this same brand. I mean, I think, and that's from, that's from throwing enough pumps away and going, I don't want to do that anymore. And when you find one, you don't have to do it with. Um, and I would also say like when I do have one of those burnout, the little skimmer on the bottom of it, I save that skimmer. And when you have a pump that needs cleaning, I just take the old one off and put the, 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 the spare on and throw it out in the sun. And that way all that gunk just dries out and falls off. You don't have to scrub it or whatever, like. Keep keep things hot swappable. That's another thing I've learned. Uh, Ron, the other thing we'll do on uh, 
on the big systems, we'll actually have two pumps plumbed together. And then yeah. if the one fails, we'll have it on a salt, like on the real big commercial system, especially with medicinal plants that we do, we'll have a, a solenoid system. So if it detects that the voltage goes below or above a certain threshold, it'll automatically close that solenoid, open the other solenoid and turn the other pump on automatically. Oh, cool. So, you know, you, you don't even have to be there. It'll automatically, it'll, you know, have a blinking light going, Hey, something went wrong, but you know, you don't have to do anything. No, that's awesome. And okay, so another thing people shouldn't for shouldn't like glaze over that you said was the bleeder valve. I do that in every system too. One, that pump, if you have a big pump or any size pump and you're restricting the flow to your beds and you're not bleeding that pressure, you're pushing back pressure on that pump, you're going to reduce its life. Two, that energy's there. Go ahead and let it provide aeration and and then the last thing is if you're doing timed pumps like I talked about for ebb and flow, having that bleeder valve, that lets that backflow come through faster than going all the way through the pump, too. So there's don't miss that one, guys. That's that's something I learned over the years that, like, when you figure it out, you're like, I, why didn't I always do this? Um, Ron says he has a hard time growing hot peppers, reapers and ghosts in California. They never produce or always die. And he tips on growing these hot peppers in aquaponics. Sure. So um, uh, peppers are, can be a little bit tricky. Uh, they're actually a great allegory plant for them. my favorite medicinal plant. They grow very similarly. So if you're looking to practice on something, they're a good one. Um, but you can put them in dual root zone pots. So put them in a you know two to, to five gallon dual root zone pot, the top half being soil, the bottom half being media. Put a layer of burlap in between, uh, and then you can top feed them that way. The other thing, too, is make sure you're adding enough potassium uh, and your micronutrients. If you're not adding a little bit of kelp extract or a little bit of powder nutrient, micronutrient, you know, uh, you can go onto like trueaquaponics.com. He has a three week dose. You can just buy them from him, uh, put them in there, uh, and away you go on that as far as nutrients go. And you don't have to think about it. Um, they, we do have ones on there that are dialed in for, um, uh, flowering crops. So that can be a great way if you don't want to have to worry about it. Uh, if not, just, you know, again, just like we were talking about before, potassium silicate, cal- calcium carbonate alternating for your pH up, pH down should help you with that potassium issue. A lot of people that get into aquaponics don't know that they're supposed to dose a, a little bit of nutrients. You know, you do get the bulk of it from the fish, but you don't get a hundred percent of it, unfortunately. Um, iron oxidizes, potassium gets depleted by the plants, molybdenum and manganese get depleted by the plants or get uh, uh, oxidized in the case of manganese. Um, another common mistake that also sometimes you see with people that have aquaponic systems is uh, people at pond centers will sell them a, a UV sterilizer to get rid of the algae. UV sterilizers will break down the chelation on iron and manganese and reduce some of the, the bioavailability of the minerals. It's not that it's eliminating the mineral from the water, it's just that it's breaking the chelation of the uh, mineral down so that it no longer can be absorbed by um, microbes or the plant. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the peppers, I agree with using either your dual root system or just simply wicking beds. I've found that peppers like soil. Like, I've never done really great with peppers in Evan. I'm okay, but not really, really great. Um but it has me thinking about building basically like almost like a duck, bu- Dutch bucket, but really more of a wicking bed style with peppers. Because one of the things that people don't realize, I think, about peppers in our country is that peppers are actually a perennial. The only reason we grow them as an annual is because pretty much everywhere here freezes. Like St. Augustine, Florida, those detali peppers, they grow like bushes. And unless they get a really bad winter, they grow year round there. Um, so if you did kind of a bucket sized wicking bed system for them, then you could take a half a dozen of them every year and just bring them in during the cold weather. And then you have a head start in your spring. Or if you have a greenhouse, you can move them into it or whatever. So that's my line there. 
in Jamaica, we have a Scotch bonnet tree in the front yard. It's literally like <laughs> nine and ten feet tall. Enormous. It has, a, it has a stalk on it like this. They're massive. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, uh, just like you're saying, if you're growing peppers, especially if you have something funky, grow it in a large pot and bring it in in the winter because you can absolutely just reduce the foliage back to just a handful of leaves, put it in the window, and they'll, they'll limp along, but they'll survive and they'll they'll kick butt in the springtime. Because that root system's already there. And yeah, you're right. Like, I'm not going to do that with like a green bell or something, but like the kind of like how many freaking ghost peppers do you really need a year? So like if you have that one plant, you know, or Carolina reapers, like I'm not even growing that. I, <laughs> that's, that's beyond me, but yeah. What I've had a lot of good luck with too is growing peppers and um, we'll take like blank fence post and then we'll take a, we'll a hole, drill that out and then we'll put a, a cloth, a root pouch and, and a, okay. a a pipe knockout and knockout cap from a piece of, of a three inch pipe or four inch pipe, knock out the center and then use it like a, a ring, like an O ring, fold yeah. the, the cloth pot around the ring of that and slip it through the hole. So it acts like a locking mechanism for the pot. And then we just run the water through that, like a vertical tower. And then the, the roots just kind of hang like an aeroponic thing. And then we'll put that above our fish tanks and then we'll take lattice and screw it into the top of the curve of the fish yeah. tank. And, and then use that as a frame and then grow the peppers across the lattice. Oh wow. We did that in a couple, in the showroom where I was used to work at and we had, you know, five, six hundred ghost peppers at any one time above the fish tank. I, I did notice before we legalized CBD in Texas, like every hydro aqua store always had peppers growing because there is that analog over to cannabis and they kind of look like it. I went in one day, I was, I was meeting with my accountant and she was busy. So I walked into the store that was next to her office and I was wearing a, t- a survival podcast shirt, but it had like a star on it. And the dude was acting all weird and shit. And finally I'm like, Oh, I know what it's like. Cause it's like, this is before legalization yeah. and all, you know, uh, oh, I get I get pulled over every time I go to Texas for driving with dreads. So it's it's driving with stuff. dreads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, K Bonk says escargot uh, integration with aquaponics. I don't so, know, man. I, I I've I've tried to find a mollusk that would do well for me in some of my systems. I heard that uh, I can't remember what there was a certain snail that's in the uh, aquarium trade. They grow like crazy. Supposedly can't control them. They're supposed to be edible. I put them in there. I never saw them again. I got ram's heads. I, I, I put or ram's horn snails, but I feed those to the ducks. I'll take a bowl, like a full-size kitchen bowl, and I'll set it in the bottom of one of my tanks, and I'll throw one algae tablet in it at night, and in the morning that bowl's full of snails, and I'll just dump it in for the ducks to eat. But I've never found anything to grow for human consumption. I like me some escargot, but... So there's two issues with doing mollusks and aquaponics and closed loops, especially for food production. So the first issue is a disease. So there's a schistomiasis and a couple of other uh, diseases that are harbored by snails that can be very harmful to humans and the fish and, and, and you know, very much be a, an issue pathogenically. So I, I, I liability wise, there's no way I'd touch it with a 10 foot pole, but, okay. um, the uh, other reason is, is that any of your mollusks are going to suck calcium out of the water like it's going out of style. So if you do mussels and, and clams, aside from mussels and clams having a parasitic life stage where they live on the gills of fish as the fluke when they're first born, they actually live like a little a leech that sucks the blood out of the gills of fish uh, until they get enough calcium to drop off, which you do not want on your fish in your aquaponic system. Um, they, they'll clog your pipes because they'll stick to the inside of your pipes and that's mm. where they'll start to form up. Um, but they also suck the, the calcium right out of your water. So you have very little bioavailable calcium. So 
for all of those reasons, don't don't put shellfish in your system. I just have noticed no negative impact to the ram's horn snails, and I don't know that they're even possible oh. to eliminate or prevent. So I yeah, they're they're something like that. A little pond snail is fine, but I wouldn't go putting. Yeah. I got you know, freshwater mussels or freshwater clams or you know the larger. Everybody always throws around the idea. Everybody always throws around the idea of crayfish too, and I've just not found that to be viable. I, I don't know where you are on that. Yeah, so crayfish, they actually, if you're just raising crayfish and separating their waste and doing like a brew system that way or a decoupled system or something like that, they can be actually wonderful um, nutrient fertilizer producers uh, for plants. The problem is, is that they don't really do well in circle in circulation with aquaponics because the the nutrient levels we need for the plants are outside of the range that compatible with the shrimp, right? Potassium levels and other things uh, that we need for the plants to thrive are going to be you know, lethal to, to them. So that's the biggest problem that you see with them. Now, um, one thing I will say, if you are going to raise shrimp is that, you know, lactobacillus and the other Korean natural farming inputs are being heavily used now in Southeast Asia to mm. reduce mortality rates, especially the fungal outbreaks. So, um, you know, again, another area where that happens. And we talked about uh, the, the animal waste, the duck waste earlier, um, pig waste and duck waste and, and cow waste and other livestock waste. If you spray that with that lactobacillus serum, that lactobacillus will eliminate that smell in two to three hours. Like it is amazing wow. how quickly that, that lactobacillus just eliminates this sulfur producing bacteria. You, you mentioned shrimp. I grow shrimp, but I don't grow them to eat. I grow a shrimp that in theory shouldn't live outdoors in Texas, but it does. Uh, they're called neocardania also known as cherry yeah. shrimp in the fish trade. So I started growing them in some tanks in my house, and I was growing different colored ones and breeding them and all. I was taking all my coals and throwing them into one of my tanks that's in a system, but it's up in the system, so it's higher up in the return where there's no large fish. It's just mosquito fish, and I do some rafting and, and stuff like that. Well, uh, I guess over time nature did its adaptation thing, and I have millions of these things now that can handle our winters. I mean, four inches of ice on the top and they're underneath there swimming. They don't give two shits. And so what I've done is I've put them high up in all my systems. And then I have overflows with like little holes drilled in them so that the water, you know, the clumps don't go down the return lines. And sooner or later, you know, they, they take a ride and then they end up down where the fish are and the fish eat them. And so they're part of the, the entire system and they feed on all the detritus and your higher level uh, tanks in a system will end up being by their very nature solids traps and then they eat the hell out of that. It's, it's, it's amazing what can work that I think people don't think can work. I mean, if you tell somebody you're going to keep neocardania shrimp outside in the winter, they think that's not possible, but I, I, I the shrimp disagree. <laughs> They're from cooler water streams, but yeah, that is definitely surprising that they live underneath the ice. Uh, uh, near Cardenias and Cardenias, uh, the crystal shrimp and, and uh, cherry shrimp are some of my favorite as well. And they're great. You can put them in your raft beds if someone already has the DWC beds uh, underneath their lettuce. It can be a great way to just breed them. Um, what's kind of funny is they're extremely racist. So you'll have oh, all of are. the red ones in one area, and then you'll have all of the, the crystal stripey ones in one area and all the orange ones. And they're very, like, gang war ish so that they don't intermingle <laughs> they're, they're, they're very tribal it's really funny yeah. uh, that's, that's the yeah. funniest thing i know we'll have Race like a hundred foot it'll be a hundred foot by eight foot trough and they're completely separated by color it's really weird wow. <laughs> uh, it's really funny but um what what the, if, if someone is doing it it can be a great way to resell a lot of those different cherry shrimps and, and crystal shrimps can sell for a pretty good price anywhere from yes, they do. You know, 80 cents up to 80 dollars a piece and you can raise them in the thousands in an aquaponic system, 
the the one that's worth the most money, if you can find them, they're they're often on the market at a times. Is the the freshwater Thai micro crabs, the freshwater spider crab? I that's the one. Those. If you can find them, they're the the ones that have the best return. Uh, they they were around for a while and they're off the market for a bit. And I think they're they're they issued permits for them again, so you can get them. But if you can get your hands on some, that's the one to breed for profit for sure. And they're very similar conditions to the the cherry shrimp, maybe slightly warmer water. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if they'd make it through our winters, but it just because it, I don't know what time of year somebody might listen to this in the future. If you go out and spend lots of money on cherry shrimp and dump them into really cold water, they're probably going to die. I was doing my culling during the summer when the water temperatures in my tanks indoors and outside were pretty close. And then that slow decline in temperature over the season, and I'm sure plenty of them died, but the ones that survived, they breed like little roaches. And then I'm in like my fifth season with them now. And they ebb and flow in population and scale, but I mean they're everywhere now, and they're even in the tanks with the big fish, the ones that are smart enough to go like up under the water celery and stuff like that. So it's the, kind of the a other cool one. thing. You're right; they sell for a lot of. That's why I was playing with them as a hobby. Like when I was like, people pay how much for a blue shrimp? You know. The other thing too, algae algae wise, is the. Um uh, Chinese hyphen algae eaters, they'll, they'll live and get the same size as your koi and their favorite food is hair algae. So if you're having a larger koi oh, wow. pond or a larger pond system that has hair algae problems, they, it's their favorite food in the world. So I mean, it's the fish to get for that problem and they can tolerate this. They're from Mongolia, so they can tolerate same conditions as koi. What are these guys called? Chinese hyphen sharks or Chinese hyphen okay. algae eater. Um, sometimes they'll call them pond sharks at the, at the garden centers. Um, but they're a great one. And then uh, if you're in a warmer climate, you can always go with the plecos or things like that. Or uh, if you're in a cooler climate, you can also go with weather loaches or um, uh, gara. Uh, those are the other fish that survive cooler temperatures. They can take what a light frost. What are the frost what's, their, what's their temperature kind of? Uh, so the, the, the garas and the weather loaches, they could take down to, you know, a frost for a day or two on the surface. Okay. You know, maybe not deep freeze, but they could definitely take a light freeze. You're teaching me something here because, I mean, I am a fish enthusiast, and I had never heard of these high fin sharks. I'm going to bring one of them up real quick here. Uh, cool. Yeah, that's a little there. one. That's a little the males one. Yeah. Get, the males get broad, like a red, like a dark red when they're uh, a big, and they have a, a big dorsal fin, right? So they'll cruise in school with the koi, and they have the shark fin that sticks out the top. So it's really fun for children and things, too. I'm going to stick some of them in one of the big ponds. If they die, they die. I mean, <laughs> like, that's how the shrimp worked out, so why not? Um, uh, next question is, what's the best book on an aquaponic system? Emphasis on setting up your first system. I don't know. Maybe you have one. I think that it's easier to learn from YouTube videos than it is from a book and then just doing it. Yeah, I would. I, if you're just looking to get started, and um, Rob Bob from Australia is a good friend of mine. He's got a wonderful YouTube channel. He's got a ton of really good content on there on how to get started. Um, if you want to take a formal class, I have a class over at APNJclass.com. It is geared towards cannabis. So, you know, full disclosure on that. We are working on a, a can of, an aquaponics class. Uh, that's more generalized for vegetables and, and water production right now. But uh, uh, you'll learn everything you need to know for a vegetable garden in that class and then a whole bunch of extra stuff that you never never knew you could do with your garden. And aquaponics, and we also have a pest class as well at uh, thepestclass.com. If you're wanting to learn just aquaponics and living soil just for your home garden, pest control, um, it's all biocontrols and beneficial insects and you know things that you are, aren't going to destroy your local uh, rivers and streams with. 
Ron says, any success growing mushrooms with aquaponics? This is what I tried. I don't know if it works yet, but I can't see how it's not gonna. I took some 15-gallon grow bags, threw a rock in the bottom so that they wouldn't float, filled them up with wood chips that I inoculated with King's Trafori, and I have some tanks that never really get a lot of sun on them, and I put some center blocks in them and set them so they're like a, like a one-third of the grow bag is in the water and the other two-thirds are above, so that can't dry out. Uh, if nothing else, I'm going to get some really fungally inoculated wood chips. Have you actually done it successfully. I thought I would be able to do it with inoculating my mulch in my wicking beds with like Kingstraphoria or oyster, but my climate's just too hot and just too dry. Have you had any success with it? Absolutely, yeah. So I originally started working with a gentleman named Nick Arnold in, in uh, Longmont, Colorado, um, and he actually was doing mushroom production above his uh, fish tanks. So he was hanging oyster mushrooms to get the humidity in these chambers. He'd got the, the, the CO2 up in the in the uh, chambers above the fish tanks and then pump that through airlines directly on top of his plants in the greenhouse next door to uh, use the CO2 to accelerate uh, plant production uh, from that. And it works extremely well. We've also had really good luck with King Strafarias. Uh, we've had good luck with some of the other ones as well. Just uh, uh, forest ones that we've popped, uh, popped up uh, elf ears and some other ones uh, just by inoculating with that IMO collection that we talked about earlier, that rice collection of local forest mycorrhizae, you can oftentimes get edible mycorrhizae that way and inoculate it into your soil. Um, oftentimes with the dual root zone pots, we'll get mushrooms popping up out of those. Uh, you know, every single day of the week, we'll have three to five pots that are sprouting something. Uh, that's the, one yeah. of my favorite things to do in the morning coming into a lot of the greenhouses that I work with, especially the dual root zone uh, crop plants, uh, is that, you know, again, mushrooms every day. You never know what's going to be popping up in the garden. It's just kind of exciting. We'll just put a disclaimer out. If it's a mushroom and you don't know what it is, don't eat it. Like, yes. be 100% sure, you know. Uh, and good resources for that. iNaturalist is a great app for your phone and a website if you want to look up local mushrooms. Um, or uh, mushroomobserver.org uh, is another great website for uh, for mushroom identification. That's another passion of mine. Uh, uh, San is in here, so we get tons of cinnabars and chantrells uh, in Oklahoma right now. Yeah, because with mushrooms, you can either be right and you get a good taste in mushroom. You can be wrong and get a bad taste in mushroom. You can be wrong and get really sick. You can get wrong and die, or you can get be wrong and be like Paul Stamets up in a tree screaming at a at a lightning storm, <laughs> you know, tripping your ass off, right? Like all of ever, those are possibilities, and, you know. If uh, you ever have a, a spicy or peppery mushroom, it's generally poisonous. There aren't really any. Um, non-poisonous ones that I'm aware of that are peppery or spicy. So, so as soon as you taste that, you've done wrong, a good rule right? of thumb. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, hypothetically, what about growing ginseng? That that's a high money crop, but that's a long term crop too. Yeah. I so so aquaponics isn't really good for those super long term growing crops. I think again, just like you're saying, it just takes too too long to grow. Um, it, it, something like wheat or corn or something else like that. It just doesn't make sense. It's being grown at scale too much. There's, there's no real reason to, to produce it, even organically. There's plenty of organic, you know, crops available far cheaper than you're going to be able to produce it. Gotcha. Um, do you know if OSHA root can be grown in the northeast United States? I'll leave that to you because I don't have any idea. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have a friend of mine growing it in Maine, so that's about as far northeast as it gets. <laughs> right, yeah, in, uh, in northeastern United States, we've tapped out when we get to Maine. Okay, cool. So, yes. Uh, it says 2299 Mick says, I have a koi pond out back, and when I backwash the filter, I use that to water my garden or other plants on the property. Any concerns with the density of nutrient 
or other concerns. I don't have any concerns. No, no. In fact, if you wanted to increase the density of nutrients, all you do is instead of doing that, pump it into an IBC tote, uh, add some of the IMO they were talking about, or even just regular old compost in a, in a, in a paint strainer if you want to increase the microbes off your property and not even buy anything uh, and put that in there and just put a, a circulatory pump and let them brew overnight before you do that. And you'll, you know, in, have those microbes increasing in population, increasing on all that fish waste and colonizing all of it. You know, you'll actually get more, more mileage out of that fish waste. So um, while what you're doing is wonderful, you could certainly get more benefit out of it um, simply by, you know, brewing it up as a compost tea, basically a, a little bit more. You want to tell everybody how they can learn more about your work and follow you online and things like that? Sure. You guys can find me every week at the Growing With Fishes podcast on your favorite podcast app or live on YouTube at Potent Ponics. Um, you can find my classes over at apmjclass.com or thepestclass.com. Uh, we'll have a new nutrient class out at nutrientclass.com. Uh, so it uh, will be launching next month. We're just about done editing that. And um, uh, we also host the aquaponic um, virtual aquaponic cannabis conference which will be the first weekend in November, uh, hosted for free live on YouTube. You can watch the previous two years' uh, conferences. We have uh, uh, live on YouTube. There's playlists there. You can watch all of that content for free. And um, uh, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, always fun to talk to more people that are doing permaculture, especially aquaponics people that uh, have an interest in the science side of it and have you know had experience with it and kind of understand some of the different things. It's always fun to educate people that are passionate about homesteading and sustainability there aren't enough people in the world that are doing that especially a lot of people that kind of cross over with the medicinal plant community they oftentimes people kind of see each other as op- opposition and oftentimes we can teach each other a whole lot you know yeah. and there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from each other and i think that uh it's always nice to to build uh, uh more community uh anytime we can yeah i have to say i don't have a lot of tolerance for pure puritanical mindsets it's like I, I'm open-minded to everything except being close-minded. That's that's kind of where I'm at with that, especially with nature. Because like when I asked you like what you know teaching and and what all and and experience have taught you, I think the biggest thing it's taught me is that nature knows more. Like when when we're both old as shit and we're you know ready to kick off and go into whatever's next, we still won't know anything. That that's like no matter how smart you are, you're still stupid when it comes to nature. Like there's probably more to learn in one cell of one plant than you have a lifetime to learn. And it's humbling. And I think that's why we always need to stay open to other viewpoints uh, in, in this discipline. I, I would say in horticulture and things like some of the stuff we were talking about today in the general sense, that's the case. But in aquaponics, it we're a baby. Aquaponics is a baby in the world of horticulture. We don't even know what's possible right now. Like we have no idea what's possible. So anyway, Stephen, this is one of the better interviews that I've done this year. I really appreciate it. You'll be welcome back on the show at any time. We have uh, comments being made to that effect right now that it's one of the best interviews uh, we have right here from uh, Weathered Soul, most likely the best episode I've listened to. So thank you for being with us today. Again, folks, the uh, the website, Potent Potics, as far as Stephen's uh, social media stuff, about one hour from right now, if you're watching us live, the audio version, well, the notes will go up. I already have everything in there, so I can't forget to do it. Uh, so get on by there. Definitely follow Stephen on social media. Subscribe to his uh, YouTube and to his podcast. Thanks again, Stephen, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Greatly appreciate it. 
Told you guys that was a fantastic interview. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I want to remind you real quick, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can always help support us is just to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. It's just a page on the Survival Podcast. It's just an easy way to remember to get there. That's tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day at T-Spaz, though, is the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. I love this little kit. I've been recommending it forever. Uh, occasionally, I don't recommend it for a while because the price goes up really high, and it did not make any sense. I'm sure it's the supply shortages or whatever. It's on sale right now for $18. bucks. it has got uh, about 50 bits in it plus the, uh, the screwdriver handle, and it's got just an incredible array of specialty bits like Torx bits and Star bits and things like that, uh, plus your common uh, you know, Phillips and, and straight screwdrivers. And it is marketed as a gunsmith kit, and... I kind of say that's great. I definitely have one in my range bag. I have some higher-end smithing screwdrivers in my main uh, gunsmith kit. Um, it's not a super high-end kit. It doesn't need to be for what it is. The beauty is that it has most of the stuff that you're going to need and you don't just have. And so as these things have been on sale throughout the years, I have one in my car glove box. I have one in my uh, glove box in my, my truck. I have one in my range kit. And, you know, when they go on sale, I'll pick up another one here and there. And I have some other ones I'll be bringing you that are similar. But I think kits like this, even if you don't own firearms, and most of you do, it makes sense to have one in the drawer in your kitchen where you keep the little hand tools and stuff. Because it doesn't have, for instance, every hex bit or every torx bit or whatever. But it probably has the one that you need when you're looking at one and you expected it to be a Phillips. And so it's just too affordable and too handy not to have one or two of these guys around. And uh, they also make good gifts as well for preppers in your life. So check it out. And remember, if you see it reviewed at T-SPAS, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it. And if I wouldn't do it again, I will not recommend it. Integrity is my brand at the Survival Podcast. You, you may not agree with everything I say, but you can always believe that I believe it when I say it or I wouldn't say it. Uh, we don't sell out here, and we don't sell cheap garbage just to sell cheap garbage and make a buck. If you pick one of these up today, i probably make 50 cents on it, if that. So we only recommend good stuff because that means people come back and use it again and again. And even if you're not buying something I recommend, you can always help support us just by starting at tspaz.com. And categorically, when you go there, you can see all the different categories of items. You can drill down and find everything I've recommended, all my reviews over time. Uh, some of you guys have been writing me about the uh, new electronic uh, pruners that uh, I recommended from Drago. And a lot of people are really happy with those. I was a big find to find those for me. My grandson is doing good work with them uh, with Chop and Drop. Uh, but I found today uh, somebody was asking me about them because they're sold out. So that's the T-SPAS effect, I guess, uh, when we do recommend new items to you. So you never know what you're going to find there. Check it out at tspaz.com. You want to make sure you get the item of the day, the episode of the day, any important announcements and stuff like that. As always, you can connect with me on the Get Social page of the website. But the other big thing you can do uh, is subscribe to the Daily Mail. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click subscribe. You'll see all the podcast services we're on and all. There's a little form there. You fill out name and email. That's all that it is. Every day you get one email. Very rare occasions you get two. I don't share your email. 
I don't, I don't sell your email. I don't do that. It wouldn't make any sense for me to do that. My view is you're my customer. I don't want to give you to somebody else. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, I protect your identity. I'm the only one with access to that email list. If you want to get your daily updates, go there and do it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way